Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm a few hours off since I got in last night a little after midnight. And so um, it's, it's not the best in the world. Um, when you, those of you who are in Zoom, because you're coming through really loud in the room, not overly, but I mean, because you're mic'd all the time, when you're not actually speaking, if you would mute, that would be super helpful. Um, all right, so should we go around and do um, quick introductions and see who's here, I guess? And then we'll get started. We have a full agenda today. So I'm Deb Cook-Lewis. I'm president of ACB. And that's about all I can remember this time of morning <laughs> in a three-hour time zone change. Um, so uh, let's see. Dan? You want to pass it around? Hello, Dan Spoon, Interim Executive Director, and I'll pass it to Connie. Connie Sims. Paul. Ray Campbell, Vice, Ray Campbell, Second Vice President of ACB. I'm going on and off here. Ray Campbell, Second Vice President of ACB, Springfield, Illinois. Michael Garrett, Treasurer, Missouri City, Texas. Doug Powell, Board of Directors from Falls Church, Virginia. And Rachel Sutter. Test, test. Here, let's see. Wait, let me change the mic. So this one works. <laughs> this one works. Hello, Rachel Schroeder, board member, Springfield, Illinois, but native Floridian. Yay. David Trott, first vice president, Talladega, Alabama, and I am not the next guy speaking. <laughs> Jeff Tom, board member, Sacramento, California. Oh, you got it. Donna Brown, uh, board member, Romney, West Virginia. <laughs> Cecilina Burr, board member, Covington, Georgia. Clark Rockfall, the ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, and a big thank you to all of the affiliates that have signed on to the DOJ Title II comments, and I'll be following up with those affiliates who have not. Nancy Marks Becker. And hi, everybody. It's Rick Morin. Deb, you want me to go around and have the yeah, guests? We'll the best. Karen Campbell, Springfield, Illinois. Peggy Garrett, Missouri City, Texas. Cache Wells, Jacksonville, Florida. They didn't hear you. Cache Wells, Jacksonville, Florida. Hi, I'm Paul Edwards from Jacksonville, Florida. 
Good morning. It's Sheila Young, President of the Florida Council and Chair of our Host Committee. Good morning, Leslie Spoon, Orlando, Florida. And that is everyone, Deb. Yeah, I mean, here in the room. <laughs> All right, so let's do the people on Zoom. Um, this will get a little chaotic, so I'm going to try to call on you, and then um, uh, if, uh, if there's anyone that I miss, that's okay, too. So, uh, Denise, are you up there? Yes, I'm here. Denise Colley, right? Yes. Where are you from? Richmond, Texas. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead and do, we take your cue. And ACB secretary. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Kenneth, are you there? Kenneth Simeon, senior, Beaumont, Texas, board of, board of director. Thank you. All right. And uh, Terry? Terry Pacheco, board of directors, Silver Spring, Maryland. All right. And um, let's see. Chris, are you up there? I am. Chris Bell, director from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. All right, and Penny, are you up there? Hi, I'm here, Penny Reader, Montgomery Village, Maryland. I'm chair of the Board of Publications. All right, did I miss any? Uh, oh, Kim, I'm, I did miss one. <laughs> Kim, Kim. Hello, it's Kim Charlson, Watertown, Massachusetts, past president. And she'll make me pay, I tell you. <laughs> I was counting them on my fingers, and somehow we got more than I thought. <laughs> okay, and then and then I believe we have our our guests. Lee is up there. Yes, I'm here. Lee Nasahi, and I'm the president and CEO of Vision Serve Alliance. I am also from Florida. Hello, everyone. Yeah, all right. And John? Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm John Cruz. Uh, uh, I'm serving as a consultant to Vision Serve uh, Alliance these days. Uh, ran a program for older people who were visually impaired in Michigan for about 15 years and retired from CDC after about 20 years. So happy to be with you today, all for right. sure. Thank you so much. Okay, I think we've got everybody covered. Um, There's a bunch of staff and consultants on too yeah. oh 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 okay um you just all figure out and tell me then tell us who's there <laughs> larry gassman fullerton california all right thank you hey dylan page los Altos, california colby garrison acb development officer good morning everybody good morning that's too you're too energetic colby i can't <laughs> can't do that <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Thank you, guys. I now. think we got it. All righty. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not watching in the Zoom, so I don't quite know what's going on up there. Thank you. All righty. I think we've got everybody, and I know there's a couple of people scraggling out there. I know Gabriel's on his way and a couple others, but we're going to go ahead and get started. So I'm sh I uh, will uh, let Dan say something about this too, but I'm sure it might want to, but I, I do, I'm really excited about um, this morning's uh, presentation that, um, that uh, Lee and John are gonna give us. And I um, first heard about this uh, several months ago when um, Lee brought it to our ACB um, advisory um, a board group, business advisory board group, and was talking about the implications of actually collecting um, significant data about the people with blindness and visual impairment in different parts of the country, different states, 
um, for lack of a better designation, and the, the implications of the differences in the populations and some of the different demographics. And I know that the primary reason for collecting all this I'm, you know, is, is about service delivery and that kind of thing. And we are interested, of course, in that, but we're also interested in development here in our organization and why we have trouble reaching certain people or um, overreaching certain groups or whatever. And some of that is, is obviously a lot of other oh. factors, but one of the factors that is uh, under consideration is simply who's there. So learning more about who's here and who's there um, I think is going to make a big difference for us. So they've done a lot of work on this. They're still doing a lot of work. And um, I'm really um, excited for us to have some exposure to that this morning. And I have been waiting a long time for this to happen. So I'm just really glad uh, to have uh, Lee and John with us this morning. Dan, did you have anything you wanted to add before we um, go to them? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Dan. Yes, uh, thank you, Deb. Just concurring with Deb, it you know we we use a lot of words and examples out there, and we have a lot of anecdotal stories. But what John has been able to develop is really harvesting true, uh, you know, information that is collected by the federal government and putting it and digesting it in a way that really shows metrics of the difference that is happening within our community, the blind and low vision community, compared to the general aging population. So it really is powerful to see those differences and now have real data that you can use to go have discussions with your members of Congress and your state representatives and your agencies serving the blind. So it's really powerful to see this data presented in a way that we can digest. So look forward to the presentation from John today. I didn't know, uh, I know Jeff and Doug, you all are very involved with the Coalition on Aging with AAVL. Did you have any comments before we get started? Because I know you've been involved in, in these efforts. <laughs> so uh, this is really almost uh, a foreshadowing, but I will just comment that the information you're about to hear and which you may have read about in the documents that we got um, from John was very instrumental in my state, and I used it uh, for our legislative efforts to get legislation passed that resulted in money being allocated for... Um, people 18 to 54 that don't have employment goals. And so there's, you know, this is, and you can do the same thing um, in your own state. So listen closely and learn, and learn from these folks, and I, I think you'll be very impressed. Doug, do you want to speak now? No, that's all right. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. All right, so uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to uh, Lee Nasahi and that you all can get started and walk us through this discussion. Uh, those of you on the board should have received in your giant packet for the meeting, um, I've, I, manage, I uh, measure production by the number of documents, so we really did good this month. Um, but you do have the PowerPoints for this presentation, both in their PowerPoint form and in document form, in your 
packet so you can kind of follow along. And, um, and thank you for coming. And um, Lee, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Deb. Um, yeah, we want to just, John and I both want to thank you all for inviting us. We love doing this work. Um, it, as Deb said, we're still working on it. There's so much that can happen from this. And there's still some states who, believe it or not, have not found the resources for us to produce their reports. It's only $10,000. If your state is one of them, please uh, try to, to usher the powers that be to bring those funds together so we can produce a report for you. Uh, John is going to start, so I, I am going to put the PowerPoint up on the screen, but as Deb said, you have the materials. So he will start, and I think you'll find him very entertaining and <laughs> educational and inspirational. And you know, John and I met about five years ago, not until I started working for Vision Serve Alliance did our paths cross. And it just breaks my heart that I didn't know him 20 years ago or 30 years ago. We could have we could have really torn it up, huh, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think so. Better late than never. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, John, take it away. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lee, for the introduction. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the kind comments. Uh, I, en I enjoy doing this as well. Uh, for me, uh, just so you know, I spent, uh, as I mentioned, I spent 15 years working for the Michigan Commission for the Blind. And uh, then after I completed my PhD, I uh, came to Atlanta. I first worked for the VA, Atlanta VA, at the Research and Development Center on Aging. And uh, then joined CDC and worked there about 20 years. And, and so um, what I'll say is that uh, in the years that I was working in Michigan, I ran the Older Blind program there and uh, it was extraordinarily gratifying. Uh, I love my clients. My clients loved me. We did a lot of clever things. Uh, and uh, so I moved into the kind of the research uh, field and made a, a living doing that. And what I tell people is that all the research topics that I have uh, have investigated really had their genesis in the conversations and interactions with the people I work with in Michigan. So I hope that the work that I've done has uh, really has application to the lives of people uh, who are blind and have low vision and to the policies and programs that we try to shape for them. So that's really important to me. So um, let's do the first slide. Well, rock and roll here. So Winston Churchill said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. And courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. So I want to recognize the courage that you folks all have this morning to, to listen to me through, through this. So let me tell you what I want to do in the, I'm going to take most of an hour unless you pull me off the stage, but let me tell you what I want to accomplish in this. And I get, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you. So, so kind of hang on. But the first thing I want to do is, is talk about kind of a public health approach to a problem and problem solving. So it's kind of a different way of looking at things from the way we do it in, in vision rehab. And then I want to share some of the findings from the big data project, just a glimpse into the data that we have that we've collected. And you can begin to fill that in pretty quickly. 
And then I want to illustrate how I think uh, these findings can be used as levers to, uh, to affect public policy. So next slide. So um, this is a photograph of a little, little boy, a little toe-headed boy who's about two years old. He's barefoot. He's um, got a, a, a little uh, uh, lace uh, collar and uh, in, a, in a garden. And then next to him is, uh, is a, a tiny little girl in a rocking chair. It looks like a doll, but it's a real person. And that person, uh, the guy, is my dad. And my dad was born in 1908 uh, in Crawford County, Indiana, which is the poorest county in the state, and uh, in a little town called Taswell. And his sisters, just about, you know, like, uh, I don't know, 18 months uh, younger than he is. Mm -hmm. and, and in the photo, she kind of has this little baffled look. Well, she, she, that, that appearance never changed. She always had this kind of baffled look. Um, but when my dad was, so he, so he lived in a very extraordinary, this is not an, a, a singular story by any means, but he lived in a very rural area. It was agrarian. People eked out a living. It's very hilly in that part of the, of the country. So there's bottomland that people farmed and the hogs would run in the, in the woods and eat the acorns. And that's kind of how things happen. So there was no money, uh, lots of rural poverty. And so my, uh, my grandfather lost his vision. I haven't, we have no idea. It's lost to history. But he lost his vision when my dad was 13. And, um, and my dad, truth be told, had about a third grade education because he would just go to school a couple of months in the, in the dead of winter and otherwise he worked on the farm. But at age 13, he was the breadwinner. Um, and uh, he then went to work in the stone quarries of southern Indiana, the limestone quarries. Next slide. And so in this photo, the third guy from the left is my dad. He's, he's a, he has this wonderful, engaging smile. He has on a pair of, of baggy overalls that are, are dirty. And there's some, there's about, I don't know, about a dozen guys there. And they're pretty rough looking. So my dad's probably maybe 16 in that photo. So he has a boy doing a man's work in a man's world and did so because of his uh, because he, his, his, his father lost his vision and there were no resources for him. Next slide. And I just want you to see this as kind of the family portrait. Uh, we talk about generational wealth. Uh, there was no generational wealth. Uh, this photo is probably taken about uh, 1925 or so. So that's my grandmother and grandfather and my dad. And next slide. And then... Uh, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, was illiterate, interestingly enough. She smoked a clay pipe, chewed tobacco, uh, had a wood cook stove inside, crank phone. Yeah, I mean, this could, you know, this was like uh, 60 years ago, but, you know, could have been 100 years ago for that matter. Uh, and then next to her is my, my maternal grandmother. They never had much in common. I think this is the closest they ever got. But my point is this. Next slide. Um, Knowing just those circumstances, just knowing that little tidbit of that story, we can begin to infer 
a whole lot of the information that drives this story. It's rural poverty, it's lack of education, lack of opportunities, lack of vision, rehabilitation, all of those things. Next slide, please. So, you th so let's think about the environment real quick. In 1920, when my, when my uh, I apologize, my dogs are just going nuts. Um, in 1920, there were no child labor laws, so it was okay for my dad to go off to the quarries. There was no social security, so there's not, no financial supports to help them. There was no vocational rehabilitation for my, for my grandfather. There was no one heard of a safety net, and no one had talked about social determinants of health, but we can see those at play. So the consequences of all of this was that vision became a kind of life-changing event for my grandfather. He could no longer care for his, his, uh, his family, but that event altered the trajectory of other people in the family, namely my father in this case. So this experience of aging and vision impairment, it just represents both a collect an individual and a collective experience. And it's extraordinarily complicated and nuanced. So I mentioned that I had worked for 15 years with the Michigan Commission for the Blind, last 20 years doing public health. I think what, I think what the discipline in vision rehab teaches us is uh, that we learn, we learn lessons about those that we serve and trying to be responsive, but we also learn lessons about ourselves. And I think what happens, one of the things that happens is that our particular background drives how we define a problem and who, when we begin and how we begin to solve it. So I think just the rehab community kind of has an approach, and I'll talk about that. Let's go to the next slide and I'll show you what I mean by that. From a kind of a vision rehab approach, we talk about the individual. We focus on the individual's unique set of needs. And then we talk about a unique set of services that are tailored for that person's individual needs. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Uh, so the services are organized around the person. We can aggregate that information in some way, we can describe the services that we have. But from a policy point of view and a population point of view, it's, it's a different way of looking at, at circumstances. So public policy and public health in particular look at the population, not the individual. We want to look at everybody. We want to be able to describe that population. And that may be at a community level, state level, or, or national level, but it's everybody, not just people who get services, uh, not just people who uh, um, get eye care, it's everybody. And then we want to examine the magnitude and dimensions of that population. So we know um, all of us, that there are some people who, who are able to avail themselves of vision rehabilitation services, and then there are just people who get lost in the system. So at the population level, we want to consider those people who are essentially lost in the system. That is the gap between people who get services and not. So, um, yeah, let's, yeah. So, uh, so public policy and public health policy looks at kind of this macro level. We can go on to the next uh, next slide. All right. So so this is a good bit of this paper, this talk today is about data. And I and I think what happens often is that uh, I cannot do anything about these dogs. I'm going to have to step, step away.
reminds me of Bob Seminarin when he was our speaker. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, tell me, how'd your talk go? Oh, it was all right until the dog showed up. <laughs> it's nice to be among friends, isn't it? Uh, wouldn't want to embarrass myself, uh, among others. Anyway, so we use this term data, and I think there's a lot of people who do research who, in fact, have kind of a haughty attitude. And it's like, I know this stuff and you don't, and I'm going to use terms that I'm familiar with you. And it kind of is off-putting, you know, so it seems like this is something you can't do. Well, I, I, I think I think instead of using the, the term data, we just need to say knowledge. We have qualitative knowledge. We have a lot of qualitative knowledge, our stories that inform things. And then we also have quantitative knowledge. And that's what I'm pretty good at. So one is not better than the other. They complement each other. So we're going to talk about kind of a new set of knowledge and we maybe kind of dump the term data. Next slide. All right. So uh, as I mentioned, public health point of view deals with the population, an important piece of public health and the effort to understand a population is what's called the case definition. How do you define people of interest? So. How do you define people who have diabetes, for example? If you have a large population survey, the only way to do that is to, is to do a, uh, uh, a telephone survey or face-to-face -face survey, but it's not an examination, so you have to ask people. So, for example, with diabetes, the standard question of diabetes is, has the physician or the healthcare provider told you you have diabetes? And most people know if they've had diabetes, so they'll say yes. Vision becomes its own problem, and uh, um, and I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. So, so I think so. One one piece of public health is understanding the, the case definition. The other part that the public health is extraordinarily good at, and I never really thought about it uh, so much, is that 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 public health has the capacity to deconstruct very complex social and health problems, or re reverse engineer those problems and then figure out where interventions reside. And I'm going to share some of that with you. Uh, the other thing I say about public health is it loves to count. So we always have these numbers. Next slide, please. Okay, now I want to share with you just a very simple model that I think it's instructive. Uh, and the model kind of characterizes public health. Some are much more co complicated and nuanced, but for our purposes, this will work. So from left to right, there's this big arrow that says problem, and then on right-hand side says response, and then there's four boxes that are kind of stacked uh, going from left to right. And the first one deals with surveillance. And the second, so that's uh, understanding the magnitude of the problem. Second is disparities. That's how, how are people different or at all, if they are different, uh, among, among people who have maybe some condition. The third box in this is what can you do about it? Uh, is there something you can do about it? And the fourth box is if you can find something to do about it, then you implement that more at a wide scale. So that's the simple area. You just define the problem. Uh, it's in some dimensional way. Try to figure out an intervention and then try to implement that. And so it happens to everything. So let's, let's go to the next slide. So I think, you know, we all became experts in surveillance during the COVID epidemic. And, uh, and everybody wanted to know how many people have COVID. Uh, and how many people are dying from COVID? How many people are hospitalized? Controls, all these numbers that are being thrown out because we wanted to understand the magnitude of the problem. And then we began to realize. So this. So so let, let me tell you about how important this is. Um, so 
so surveillance deals it, it deals with understanding the entire population. So it stands in stark contrast to clinical data or administrative data. So you might have a private agency or a public agency, and it says we served X number of people who are visually impaired, the King Guard Agency. Well, that's just who you serve. You don't know anything about the people you didn't serve. It could be that you're doing things that deliberately exclude people for some reason. Um, so we want to look at the whole population. Vision surveillance is driven by rigor and science. So we don't make this stuff up. We take this very seriously uh, because if you underestimate a problem, for example, and you know, COVID's a great example. If you underestimate a problem, then you're not directing resources to it and it gets out of control. Now for vision impairment, uh, it's not as fluid as something like COVID. Uh, but if we're underestimating the problem, then we're not directing the resources. At the same time, if you overestimate the problem, and we're competing, aren't we, with other kinds of conditions and circumstances. So if a problem gets overestimated, then resources get directed unnecessarily to that. So, so we're trying to make kind of a rational kind of decision. So if surveillance is off, if the initial numbers are off, all other decisions are wrong. If we've underestimated, and we're low, then every decision we make is wrong. If we've overestimated, then every decision is wrong. And that applies to anything, not just vision impairment. Next slide. All right. So the question we get asked, so I was the CDC, you know, for 20 years, and I got a call, honestly, every week, how many people in the United States are, are visually impaired and blind? <laughs> and... Uh, and so what I would do is I would launch into these discussions about various surveys, case definitions, and the results of all that. And then people's eyes just glazed over and it's like, uh, too much information, just give me a number. <laughs> and so I changed my strategy in that. I ended up saying, uh, so people call up, how many people are visually impaired? And I would say, how many people do you want there to be? <laughs> and they would say, oh, well, uh, I don't know, how about 10 million? Okay, I'll give you the study that shows, shows that there's 10 million people with vision impairment. There is a lot of variability in these estimates because of the case definition. You ask one question, you're gonna get one number. If you ask another question, you're gonna get another number. They're not wrong. It's, that's just the count of the question you ask. So if you ask a broad question, you get a big number. You ask a narrower question, you get a narrow number. Nothing wrong with that, it's just a question. But the interestingly, and not to get into the weeds of this, but this is how I make a living. It, we don't have a standard question that we ask in surveys. Uh, we have you know, standard questions like diabetes and heart disease and that sort of thing. But in vision impairment, we don't. We have tons of, in fact, there's over 100 questions that are asked in, in federal surveys about vision. So, but what, what we want to know, so now here's just an important thing. I talk about prevalence. And prevalence means how many people are there in this, uh, uh, that meet this case definition? What's the prevalence of this uh, uh, factor? Incidence means the number of new cases. So the two different terms. So, so we're always talking about prevalence uh, of, of vision impairment. But what we all know is is growing is as stable as declining. And then how is the population distributed by age, sex, race, ethnicity, and geography? So those are kind of the surveillance questions. Next question, next, next slide, please. 
All right, so there's two, two surveys uh, that are predominantly used in vision research, and you're probably familiar with both of them. Uh, uh, there's the American Community Survey, which is part of the census, and the census asks, are you blind or do you have serious difficulty seeing? That's the question. There's no context to that question. It's just asked, are you blind? Do you have serious difficulty seeing? Response is yes or no. It's not, there's no, it's not a scaled response. It's not how much difficulty do you have seeing? It's just yes or no. Um, and so is that a good question? I don't think so, to tell you the truth, but it's the question we got. And so we have to do that. Now, that's that question of the American Community Survey uh, is now mandated by HHS to be in other surveys. And so that's how this question got into the BRFSS in 2013 and then allowed a lot of us to do the analysis that I'm going to share with you. Next slide. But there's another survey called the National Health Interview Survey. It has a different question. It asks, do you have any difficulty seeing even when wearing glasses? And if you say yes, then a follow-up question is, are you blind? Yes or, yes or no. Now, the National Health Interview Survey, do you have difficulty seeing even when wearing glasses, doubles the prevalence. It's just a broader question. Yeah. Okay, so we're using the, the, uh, the ACS case definition. Next slide. But just need to know that. So when people say, it's not that we don't know what we're doing. They're just, we're just using different things. So, okay, so this, this, whole prob, this whole surveillance problem led us to the importance of the big data project, and I want to share some of the details with, with that. All right, next slide, please. All right, so the aim of the deep big data project is this. We wanted to create state-level profiles using behavioral risk factor surveillance system data, and I'm going to share a little bit of that with you to characterize the prevalence of blindness and low vision among people with vision impairment and to look at their circumstances. We want to look at some chronic conditions. We want to look to see are people with vision impairment different from people without vision impairment. That's important. And then the second thing we could do with this data set, the American Community Survey, is we, could, we can create county-level estimates of vision impairment. We have five years of data. Uh, you can combine that and create those county level data. So you can see how this immediately becomes a lever for you to uh, to describe if you've got a, a private agency uh, or you're working in a state, you can begin to refine that those data to characterize. So you can you can take you can go to a you know a state legislator and you can carve out their counties and say these are the, these are the counties that you that you represent and here's the prevalence of vision impairment in each of those counties. And then he's got, you know, it's, it's not a big number. It's not one that's, you know, a national number. It's, it's your community. So you have to decide whether you're going to act on that or not. Next slide, please. Okay. So I want you to know a little bit about the BRFSS. We're going to run through this. The BRFSS, Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance System, it comes trippingly off the tongue after you work with it for about 20 years. But it's administered by states. It has the financial support and the protocol is dictated by CDC. So CDC pays for it, but states administer it. The, the, CD, the BRFSS samples 440,000 people annually. It's the world's largest and oldest telephone survey. 
uh, and recognizes. I know the first question you want to ask is, well, we don't have landlines anymore, but they know that. You know, they've, you know, any question you have, they've already thought about. But it's called, but they use a sample, a complex sampling frame. All that means is that they don't ask the first 440,000 people that walk down the street a set of questions, but they deliberately target geographic areas to make sure that, that some groups are overrepresented uh, and oversampled if they're underrepresented in the population. Now, the purpose of the BRFSS, and this is where the kind of serendipity of this fit, fits with our, with our interest, is the BRFSS was designed to address health behaviors, things like smoking rates. So, you know, we know that, you know, I mean, when I was a kid in the 60s, you know, in the 50s, everybody smoked. And now we're down to about 16%, and it's kind of a 16% that won't stop smoking. But we're able to track that trend, and that's the BRFSS can do that. And also looks at things like health risks, which might be something like obesity. Those findings are used to inform health policy. So you know if you're having an effect, either decreasing smoking or if, if obesity is increasing, you can begin to address that. Then you can take that data and you can aggregate it or disaggregate it in a number of ways. So you can create state profiles. You, if you have large metropolitan areas within that, you can create regional profile and you can aggregate all the data and do a national profile. And so we have done both state level data and, and national profiles. The American Community Survey now is the census and the census had samples differently, but it asks the same question. Are you blind or do you have serious difficulty seeing yes or no? Uh, and so we, that give, so we have two data sets that ask the same question. So that, that's important to know when you're describing this and why are you doing this? And why, why is this number different from somebody else? It's a case definition. It's what we got. It's what we're analyzing. Next slide. All right. So remember the case definition is are you blind? Do you have serious difficulty seeing? Both the ACS and BRFS issues, same thing. It, the response is yes or no, not a scaled response. I would love to have a scaled response question, but we don't have it. Neither of those surveys uh, ask about vision rebiltation. And uh, so we don't know. We don't know if people receive vision rebiltation. There is a question in the, the uh, National Health Interview Survey that's asked occasionally about every eight years if people receive uh, vision rebiltation. But the fact of the matter is every survey has limitation. We got what we got, and that's what we're going to examine. Next slide. All right. So what I want to share with you is give you a little glimpse into um, results from the first eight states that we've with, that we put together, because there's so much variability, and uh, and that's what's striking about this. Every state, and I'm not, I don't give away this, but I'm, so I'm going to just look at eight states in the U.S. states. So let's go to the the. Uh, all right. So here's what we found: uh, women are more likely than men to have vision impairment. We know that. Uh, that people who are older are more likely to have uh, vision impairment. We know that. So that, that just confirmed that fine. Next slide. Um, we also know, but these are really good numbers. We also know that people who, that, that the prevalence of vision impairment varies by race, ethnicity. So among white people, using this case definition of are you blind, you have serious difficulty seeing, 6.1% of white people over the age of 65 nationally say they have a vision impairment compared to 8.8% of people with Asians, 10.5% of people who are black African-American, 14% of people who are Hispanic, and 14.2% of people who are Native Americans. What's nice about this big data set 
at the national level is we can estimate among uh, Native American populations and aging populations, and usually the sample is too small. So if you start looking at who's the at-risk group uh, and how they are distributed in your state, um, knowing that um, uh, that the, re- the prevalence is higher among some racial ethnic groups gives you some guidance about the targeting a, po- a particular population. Next slide. All right, so the question is, this is a test. Is blindness and low vision evenly distributed across the United States? I know some people are online. Yes or no? No. 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 Okay, well, smart. All right. Okay, <laughs> All right, next, so let's go to the next slide and I'll show you. So we got eight, eight states. So nationally, about 7.3% of people over the age of 65 give a positive response to the question, are you blind? Do you have serious difficulty seeing? It varies from 5.8% in Illinois, a low, to a high of 12.4% in Louisiana. That's substantial range. So, uh, so Louisiana has a prevalence that is twice as high as Illinois, twice as high as Pennsylvania. Oklahoma is 10.1%. Now, I know, I know your the gears in your your brains are starting to crank and try trying to figure out why is that. And we could collectively we can begin to figure that out. Now, look at look at it. look at Florida, seven point five percent. Why do you think Florida is so low? There's a lot of old people there. This is just the prevalence. It does. It's not the estimated population. It's just the prevalence. So, but why do you think that prevalence is low in a state like Florida? Anybody? Availability of health care? Uh, well, here's what I think. Yeah, that's part of the answer, actually. Uh, but part of it is that a lot of the retirees who who, who moved to Florida moved from the Northeast and the Midwest to Florida. And those people were more affluent and able to travel, had the money to be able to make the transition. And so they're probably, it's a kind of a self-selected group, isn't it? Uh, and so they were probably, you know, well to begin with. Now, Louisiana is an extraordinarily poor state and uh, and poverty kind of drives some of this. We're going to look at, we'll look at some of that detail. Let's, let's do the next slide. All right. So this, this is just a map. Uh, that that has the prevalence of vision impairment using the same case definition among people age 18 and over and it's broken out into quartiles and so it's just shaded but but what's apparent is that there are regions in the country that have much higher prevalence of vision impairment than others and so if you look at the Appalachian area West Virginia Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Tennessee um, it's kind of a poor white Community very high prevalence of high high prevalence of poverty, high prevalence of vision impairment, lack of access to care. I mean, you name it. We can begin to figure that out. In the South, there's lots of high prevalence of vision impairment because of rural blacks uh, and poverty issues. And then along the, the the border counties in Texas, there's high prevalence of vision impairment among Hispanics. Same kind of thing. It begins to tell a story, doesn't it? And we can begin to fill this in. And so because you know, pretty cool as, a, as an advocacy tool. Next slide, please. 
All right, so this gets into our back to our model. So this, so we obsess about this whole business of what is the number? What's the the prevalence of of vision impairment? But I think what's more important is in dot the is the number is are people who experience vision impairment different from people who don't? And so that's the question I want to ask: Is there a disparity? So let's let's look at some of the the data that we have from that. All right, so. Um, uh, so the potential disparities would be in comorbid conditions, other health conditions, health behaviors, health outcomes, social economic status, quality of life, health rate of quality of life, depression, and oral health. So we can look at all of those things. And those those gaps, those differences begin to tell us where we might want to do something about it. So next slide. All right. So this just shows, this slide just shows the prevalence of chronic conditions among people with and without blindness and low vision uh, at the U.S. level, looking at five five conditions. So I'm looking at stroke, heart disease, diabetes, depression, and hearing impairment. So among people without vision impairment nationally, 7.3% have reported stroke compared to 17% of people with vision impairment. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, if you have a stroke, and depending on where it occurs, it may, have, may, may affect vision. Um, so I can explain some of that, but then there's probably other risk factors. But it means that stroke rehab should be addressing people with vision impairment because it is so high. And as we know, you know, we all know this. Sometimes when somebody has a stroke, you get, you know, somebody has difficulty with speech. In comes the the, the the speech and language pathologist. They have difficulty with mobility. In comes the PT. They have difficulty, you know, using their hands. In comes the OT. Vision does not often, I don't want to say never, off, vision often does not get assessed in that stroke rehab process. So there's, you know, an area for concern. Uh, heart, among heart disease, people with vision impairment are about twice as likely to have heart disease. We can figure that out. As you would expect, diabetes is higher, 22% compared to 36%. And I think there's implications to that, which I'm going to talk about. Depression is 14% among people without vision impairment blindness compared to 27% among people with. So uh, and that could be any number of issues. And then importantly, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about, uh, we always talk about hearing people who have both vision impairment and hearing, uh, hearing loss. And, and, and so um, about 13 point something percent of people without vision impairment have uh, hearing impairment and compared to 33.3%. Now the question that's asked regarding hearing is, do you have serious difficulty hearing? And then it does not ask if you're even wearing hearing aids. So, um, so the combination of vision impairment and hearing impairment has huge, comp uh, huge uh, implications. So we're gonna come back and examine that as well. But here's these differences in chronic conditions. Now, now if we look at this on a more granular level, we're going to move down to the state level. So, so we know people with diabetes, about 22% people without vision impairment, blindness have vision impairment compared to 38, 7%. But it, now this is, I haven't figured this out, so you can help me. If you look at the prevalence of diabetes among people without blindness and low vision at the state level, it's pretty consistent, 22%, 23%, bounces right around that. But the prevalence of, of diabetes among people who, who are blind and have low vision bounces around a lot. The high is Louisiana. Louisiana 
is kind of this outlier in the data in these in these eight states. By every factor, poverty, chronic conditions, it's higher than the other states. But look at New York. Twenty-one percent of people in in New York without vision impairment report diabetes compared to forty-two percent of people without vision impairment. I think there's huge, huge implications for this uh, from a program and policy point of view. Next slide, because I'm, I'm going to race through a lot of data here, and so, so just keep hanging on. Now, we look at hearing impairment. Look at this. Look at now. So most people have hearing. So I have I have these $6,000 hearing aids that are, I, I think, pretty much useless. I just really struggle, um, <laughs> even though it's supposed to be, you know, you know, really use, useful. Um, but in, in Louisiana, so most people have vision, hearing impairment are men. So we know that. And that's real vision impairment. It's not, they're not real hearing impairment, not convenient hearing impairment. Okay. So um, in Louisiana, 44%, 44%. I mean, like that's half, right? Half the people who, and most of those are going to be men. Half the people who have report vision impairment also report hearing impairment compared to 15% of people without vision impairment. Think of the implications of that. I mean, just, you know, you think about like the clinical, you go see your doctor and the doctor says, oh yeah, you got all these little problems. I'm gonna, here's here's a little handout. It's in 12 point print, you can't read it, but maybe get somebody to read it for you. And by the way, you can't hear a word I'm saying because your hearing aids don't work. And we know that poverty is just really rampant among older people with vision impairment. So I got these $6,000 hearing aids. If you don't, if you, if you're living on ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year, you're not going to spend six thousand dollars on hearing aids. Um, so you can see this kind of this accumulative effect that begins to occur. Next slide. I don't mean to overinterpret this. Now, there's now interestingly in the B, in the BRFSS and the American Community Survey, there's six disability measures, and I want you to pay attention to these because I think there nobody's ever looked at this before. I mean, all this data that we created for the big data sets, nobody's ever done before. By the way, just so you know, we didn't take it from somebody else and and redo it. It's it's all original research. But there's six disability measures. So let's let's go to, let's go to the next slide, and I'll show you. So the questions are. Now, just pay attention to how these are phrased. Is this person deaf or does he, she have serious difficulty hearing? Not any difficulty. Do you have serious difficulty? So it's assuming, you know, a lot of hearing impairment. Uh, so that's the question we just looked at and, and the prevalence of that. And then the, the, the next question is the vision question. Is this person blind or does he, she have serious difficulty seeing even when wearing glasses. So again, it's a severity question. The third question is, do you have serious difficulty concentrating, remembering, or making decisions? That's a cognition question, but it's serious difficulty, not any difficulty. Unless it looks next to. So do you have serious difficulty walking or climbing stairs? Do you have difficulty? Now this is difficult, any difficulty. Do you have any difficulty dressing or bathing? And then the last question is, do you have any difficulty running errands alone, such as visiting doctor's office or shopping? Now, if you've been around, you know, we've all been around in this field for a long time. 
And there used to be ADLs and IADLs, and those terms are kind of passe. But the difficulty dressing and bathing is kind of an ADL question, and the difficulty running errands is kind of an IADL question. It's like there's a lot of things involved in running errands. So let's look at the results, and then I want you, you know, see if you agree with me on, on what you think. So if we ask the question about difficulty concentrating, remembering, 8.2%, these are older people, nationally, report difficult without vision impairment, report difficulty concentrating compared to 29% of people with with vision impairment. There's a fair amount of research that's been done around this, mainly by a, a woman named Heather Whitson at, uh, at Duke. But now look at the next question. Difficulty, do you have serious difficulty walking and climbing steps? 25% of people without vision impairment report difficulty. And it could be any number of reasons. I mean, you know, I got a 77-year-old knee and a 77-year-old hip, so uh, I, I, I don't know if my right hip is older than my left hip, but the right hip seems older insofar <laughs> that it gives me mobility problems. So that's kind of common with old, with with age, but six, nearly 60% of people uh, re- with vision impairment report difficulty walking and climbing stairs. Well, there's kind of a discipline, isn't there, in uh, – uh, in vision rehab called orientation mobility that deals with walking and climbing stairs. So is this difference? This is a question I, we, we can't answer this. We can speculate, but is this difference attributed to a lack of orientation mobility skills? It seems pretty reasonable to me, at least some of it. I mean, so what you want to do in all of these circumstances is to to improve the health and circumstances of people's vision impairment, so that you're not it's not going to go away. You just want it to be the same as people without vision impairment. That's what you're trying to get to. So then you think about look at dress bathing, uh, dressing and bathing. Um, so twenty percent of people with, with vision impairment report difficulty dressing and bathing compared to five percent of people with, with vision. So I went through the vision rehabilitation program at Western Michigan University, uh, you know, almost fifty years ago. And, uh, you know, first thing you talk about is, you know, how do you identify clothing and, you know, have some some way of, you know, dealing with that in a in a in a logical way. So is that is that difference, 15 percent difference? Is that a lack of the provision of vision rehab services? I don't know, but I think that begins to make sense to me. So this kind of excess disability that is occurring in the population that we're interested in because of a lack of rehabilitation service. Running errands is the same thing. 7.7% of people without vision impairment compared to 35%. So it's five times more likely to report difficulty. So, you know, if you're going to run an errand, you have to figure out what it is we want. You have to figure out where you're going to go. How are you going to get there? How are you going to find the stuff when you get to the shop? Then how do you, you know, get yourself checked out? And then how you get back home and get it all put away. So there's all these things that are involved in that. And so you can't tell me that uh, that that difference is just attributed to the vision impairment. I think it's attributed to the lack of of vision rehabilitation skills. Now, we can make that we we've got the evidence. We don't have enough granular data within that to tell that story. But I think it begins to make sense. Next slide. All right. Uh, so I, I, tr- I, I use the term excess disability. Lack of vi- lack of vision rehabilitation creates excess disability. It shouldn't be there. Next slide. All right. I'm going to skip over this slide. Next one. 
All right. So there's a story here, isn't there? That's what I love about this. It begins to tell a story. There's a term uh, in, in public health called social determinants of health. And so that begins to inform this story. So there's a lot. So what we found in the big data set is there's a lot of poverty. So if you're like my dad, you know, at, you know, dirt poor, you, those are upstream factors that affect the, the trajectory of your life. If you have lower education, that affects your life. And we know among older people with vision impairment, and, and most of the people we're looking at in these in these studies are people who've acquired vision uh, in, in later life, not didn't, didn't start out with vision impairment, but they have lower education levels. We know there's geographic that geographic location dictates the prevalence of vision impairment because of the lack of because of the resources that are available there. The eye, availability of eye care, the availability of uh, vision rehabilitation services. We know we know in this country that even with strong private agencies, as hard as they try, uh, there are these deserts in this country where there's absolutely nothing that looks like vision rehabilitation services. Uh, but we also know people, you know, if you're in, in a poor area, that you have poor access to eye care uh, or health care generally, and that if you are poor and you're lower educated, the consequence of that or the association is often the development of chronic conditions. And then you, that leads to poor health rate quality of life, which may be a kind of a proximal outcome. And then the greater disability that we've seen. So you can kind of put all these pieces together and begin to tell a story. And then you can begin to show where if you do things, you know, make sure that people get access to health care, make sure they get access to vision rehabilitation services, that you can interrupt that trajectory. And I think that's where the opportunity resides for us. Next slide. Okay. So Stephen Fuse says numbers give numbers have an important story to tell. They rely on you, all of us collectively, to give them a clear and convincing voice. So we've got our stories that we're very good at, and we've got some data now. And by, by filling in those two pieces, I think we've, we've, we, we have opportunities to influence public policy. Next slide. All right. So here's our model, right? So first thing we look at is, uh, the, pre- the prevalence of vision impairment. Then are people with vision impairment different from people without vision impairment? Yes. And then is this something we can do about it? And then can we implement that? So let me walk through that real quick and I'm just going to be a run. Now, what I would suggest is this pathway that I want to talk about. It's extremely complicated. You know, if you think there's a simple uh, solution to this, uh, these problems, you're wrong. Uh, it's complicated stuff and needs a, uh, uh, an appropriate response. So vision impairment, it's layered, it's nuanced, it's fluid, it's dimensional. Um, and so we have to, we have to embrace that. But I think, as I mentioned, that we can interrupt that. So, so disparities is one place where we can, can create an intervention and that intervention may be as, as com- complicated as as, uh, as as vision impairment. Next slide. So let me sh- let me walk through this. So so here's a question I ask, and this is this again. This says a lot about us. Um, I ask the question: Who owns older people who are blind and uh, and low vision? Who owns them? Who owns the problem? And typically, what we do is we say, "Well, we do." You know, we're kind of the vision rehab community. Uh, we, we, uh, you know, we work in partnership with our, 
our uh, constituents, and we're going to fix everything. And I, I think we need to reframe that. So let's let's go to the next slide. So I've got three models here that I want to toy with. So there's this big blue circle that's labeled public health. And under that is false prevention, diabetes prevention management, chronic disease management, exercise and conditioning, and surveillance. Big blue circle with all those factors in it. And then adjacent to that, separate from that, is a tiny little red circle labeled Vision Rehab Network. And they don't touch. They're just out there kind of bouncing around. But if if we were to rethink this and said, well, think of all the things that public health is supposed to be involved with. False prevention, chronic disease management, diabetes management and, and condition. There's an overlap. This is like a Venn diagram. And the conversation, I think, should change. We always say, we'll do it. If people have diabetes and vision impairment, we'll have a program for them. But diabetes has a separate division on on, on uh, diabetes. And I think the conversation should be with, di- with public health, for example, to say, what, you know, we know people with diabetes or t- people with vision impairment twice as likely to have diabetes. What are you, CDC, doing about it? Now, what are we doing about it? What are you doing about it? You own the problem because there's nothing in your mandate that says we're going to serve everybody who has diabetes except people with a vision impairment. People with diabetes, visually impaired or not, are part of their constituency. So we need to change that dialogue. Now, if you look at the aging network, same thing. We're afloat. So we got this big blue dot, aging network. Aging is involved transportation, community sports, false prevention, nutrition, mental health. And that's under their purview. And then we got the Vision Rehab Network, and we're out here by ourselves, you know, trying to solve all those problems. Well, no, it needs to be a Venn diagram. Next slide. Where there's this overlap, and we say to the the aging network, you're supposed to do transportation. There's a lot of people who need, with vision impairment, who need transportation. There, you do, you do meal, uh, meals, uh, congregate meals for people with vision impairment. Are, Are those people showing up? Is it a friendly environment? Is the lighting adequate? Is the print size adequate? Is the glare diminished? Uh, are you reaching out to the people who need that? So there's a diet. And, and this does not have to be confrontational, by the way. You can just ask the question, you know, and, and I know I'll go tell you what's, what the response is going to be. Next slide. The National Eye Institute, if you look at the National Eye Institute, they figured out that, that, that there, there, there are people who are blind and have low vision. And uh, and that's part of their mandate now, interestingly enough. But they're not doing the kind of research that the vision rehabilitation community needs. So next slide. So it should be that this is a Venn diagram. And we go to the NEI and say um, um, that, you know, your agenda matches our agenda. And and we want we want to help you spend all the money that you've got. Next slide. All right. So. So I think what's important in this is uh, Edwards Edwards Deming said, uh, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. So we've got some data now, and it's it's rigorous data. It is well done. We can defend it in any venue. And so we have that data, not just an opinion. We begin to combine that with our story. Next slide. And so now I'm going to give you some examples about how we might implement all this, Okay. So the data, so false, uh, so we know that people with vision impairment 
and blindness are twice as likely to fall as people without vision impairment. Some of that's kind of intuitive, I think, you know, like I've got these two dogs that won't leave me alone. So they're triplets, <laughs> right? Um, but so we know that people with vision impairment are like twice as likely to fall. So we know that that's the data set. All right. Now the gap is, and I, and this, so I work at the CDC, right? And CDC has an injury center. The injury center does false prevention that they have put this CDC stamp of approval on 34 false prevention interventions. I looked at all of them, four of them, four of them mentioned vision impairment. They just ask the question, do you have vision impairment? None of them alter, none of them will alter the intervention based upon somebody reporting vision impairment. The rest of them just ignore vision altogether. So here you've got people twice as likely to have vision impairment. You've got a federal agency that says they do false prevention and they don't, they have not addressed the particular needs of people who are at greatest risk. All right. So you just ask the question. So now what do you do about it? Knowing all of that, what do you do about it? Well, you can create or refine evidence-based interventions for people with vision impairment, make sure they're fully successful and they work. That's the research piece of this. And then you begin to influence public policy. And then you say public, you know, it's public health owns false prevention. Aging owns false prevention. I say, say to them, um, 49% of people with vision impairment are more likely to fall. So they're at greater risk. So you, public health, need to begin including people with vision impairment in your in your false prevention programs. Figure, you figure it out. It's because it's your mandate. We do the same thing with aging. Or we can say, if you guys won't do it, give us the money and we'll do it through our network of private vision rehabilitation agencies. There's any way to do this, but you can see the sequence. Diabetes is the same thing. So, so, so diabetes management and prevention is a big deal. Many private agencies do a stellar job doing diabetes management and prevention. You, you, no question about it, but it's not, there's not a systematic response to that. So CDC, um, should, I believe, uh, um, de develop appropriate interventions, should fund the development of appropriate interventions or modify interventions so that they're fully accessible for people with vision impairment, create those evidence-based interventions, and then export those either through the public health community or through the vision rehabilitation community. See how this begins to work? You take the data and you figure out what's the gap is, and then and so it's a conversation. I get, I tend to get, I don't want to say overly emotional about it, but you can have a very rational conversation to walk people through this. Let's look at the next one. We know that people with vision impairment are more likely to have chronic conditions. We know that the origins of those are probably in poverty and so forth. We know that. Uh, there is a, uh, a program called the Stanford Chronic Disease Management Program. It is, it's, 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 it's very widely uh, recognized. It is not accessible to people with vision impairment. I did several years ago. I called up the lady who, who had designed this. And I mentioned this to her and she made it really clear that that was her program and she didn't want somebody from CDC messing with it. Um, but we've come a ways now. So there's there are other preventions. But the question is, can you take these chronic disease management programs, make them fully accessible for people with vision impairment, make sure that they are uh, effective 
among people with vision impairment, and then integrate, then you just begin to influence public policy, so public health, aging, and the, the vision rehabilitation that works done. So you just, you can walk anything through this. The same thing is with surveillance, and I'll just touch on this real quick. If, if you go to the aging community and say, are you serving people with uh, vision impairment? You can say, you know, we estimate there's blank number of people with vision impairment in this county over the age of 65. Are you serving them? They say, oh, of course we're serving them. And then you say, well, how do you know that? Well, we serve everybody. We don't exclude anybody. And um, But if they haven't counted that, if they haven't counted vision impairment. So one of the things that area agencies on aging are mandated to do is to do is to survey their constituents. So if we collectively went to the area agencies on aging and said, we want you to include this vision question. It's in the, it's a census question. BRFSS uses it. HHS demands it. Um, so if you ask those questions and then it's their data that show that there's like 14% of people over the age of 65 have vision impairment, then there ought to be something like 14% of people who are showing up at these meal sites and so forth who have vision impairment. You, you know, without the data, you don't know any of that, but it begins to, to foster this dialogue, this conversation that keeps people honest. Next slide. All right. So here we go. We got our model. We start with surveillance. We look at disparities. We found that we've identified a number of disparities. There are interventions that work, but a lot of interventions need to be developed. And those, those, those effective interventions needed to be integrated into public policy and programs. Next slide. All right. Uh, next slide. I'm going to jump over this. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. Okay. So, um, at the clinical level, we need to develop evidence-based interventions. At the policy level, we need to engage aging, public health, and others, those who have the money. And then we need to deconstruct the problem, just as we have done today, and show where there are opportunities for us to develop uh, effective clinical interventions and policy changes. And we can just kind of take that model that I created, and you can walk through any number of things. Next slide. Okay, so I, I, I want to get off just just I'll just mention quickly vision vision research vision rehabilitation research is horribly underfunded. I mean, there's like no funding at all. There's virtually no funding for vision and eye health research. I mean, there is for the for the eyeball, but not for how people function. So one of the things that we need to think about. This is kind of a big macro agenda, long-term agenda, is we need to develop a cadre of clinician scientists, people who know vision rehabilitation and can be good scientific investigators, people who can do both. And there's there's just, you know, I was, you know, I hate to say it, I was the only person in the federal government who had worked in vision rehabilitation and had a PhD and did vision research uh, you know, they're just, they're just not there. And if they're not on the inside, they can't influence policy decision. But anyway, then we can begin to embed vision research into the national agenda and create tools, uh, and promote scientific inquiry. Means it needs to be, needs to be enough, enough help. Now, I want you to know one of the things we've done through the, uh, aging and vision loss national coalition is to develop a thing called the RAC, uh, research articles collection. It's being housed at Mississippi State University, but the idea is we put it together, we're trying to get a couple hundred articles 
that are the kind of things that people should go to for the first cut if they're trying to do research in vision and and uh, uh, and and aging. And so I just want you to know that that's something that we've already done. It's really it's pretty cool. So instead of doing a you know a search on Google and then you find that you have to pay thirty five bucks to get a, a you know an article, we're, we've collected all these things in one place. Next slide. All right. So Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall change the world. Well, I think we have that lever now. We have the data that allow us to leverage uh, substantial policy and practice changes. Next slide. So here's so here's real quick an agenda. So what if we, all this division, rehabilitation, blindness community, what if we created a national research agenda and we said, this is what we want to see investigated? Uh, you know, you don't figure it out. We'll tell you what we think. And then if we created a portfolio of evidence-based interventions that were aligned with public health and aging goals and then begin to advocate for those two to be disseminated widely. Or what if, what if we advocated for a national call to action in public health or a Surgeon General's report or a, a National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine report? And I'm, I, and I've kind of gone through that. I'm just going to flip through the next slides to show you and going to do that. But there was a NASA report. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Next slide. There was a Surgeon General's call to action that's done a few years ago that was looking at, at, uh, health and wellness among people with disabilities generally, but we could do one on vision impairment. Next slide. Healthy people has objectives. They're, they are so miserable, you know, to increase uh, access to vision rehab services from 4.3% to 6.2% by uh, 2030. Knock yourself out. Um, it, you know, it means that at that rate, by the time people get the services, we have universal services. We'll be well into the next century. Uh, next slide. Okay. And then National Eye Institute has a strategic plan. And part of that plan deals with low vision rehabilitation. And part of that plan deals with individual quality of life and public health and disparities research. We're in that plan. We just need to go to NEI and say, here's where we are. It's your plan. It's not our plan. It's your plan. We're in there. What are you doing about it? Next slide. All right. So all these pieces fit together. That's what I think is cool about this. We just, we, we can show how this is kind of a unified agenda and we know the pieces of all that. Next slide. All right. So, so here's the story. Problems vision impairment defines the magnitude of the problem. Disparities show where interventions can be developed and deployed. Disparities show where policies can be modified and embedding vision research agenda into major policy initiatives may allow for may allow for continued support next slide all right so we're at the end so what does all this have to do with a 13 year old boy in 1920 who was required to do a man's work in the limestone quarries of southern indiana what does it have to do with him well think about it today it would be unconscionable for a 13-year-old boy to do the dangerous work in those stone quarries because there were no child labor laws then. And today it would be unimaginable for a family to just be bankrupt with no financial supports because there was no social security. And today 
we couldn't imagine that there would be a farmer in some rural area who is visually impaired and wanted to continue farming and there would be no vocational rehabilitation services available to them because there was no voc rehab in 1920. John Kennedy said, things don't just happen. They are made to happen. And in the hundred years since my grandfather lost his vision and my father went off to work in the stone quarries, advocates like you, champions like you, have changed child labor laws, supported Social Security, and have implemented VR programs. So it's my hope, my sincere hope, that we will soon look back and view the lack of vision rehabilitation services to older people as something that is simply unacceptable. That we'll turn away from policies that marginalize older people with vision impairment and have low vision. So it's our turn, isn't it? It's our turn to step up and advocate for our older constituents and make the policy changes that are so desperately needed. Next slide. So thank you. Next slide. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Um, any of you have some questions for him? Lee, this is Kim. Yeah, she's got it. And wow, John, that was great. That was really, really great. <laughs> A lot of super information. And um, I think we saw uh, some evidence, I believe, from your work and Vision Serve Alliance's work and ACB's work in September because um, NIH announced that finally um, people with disabilities have health disparity issues and they have now included people with disabilities in their health, health disparity and they announced it as you know this is what we're doing and it's like we've known this for a long time but now finally they're acknowledging that which is an example of exactly what you're talking about to get in into the NIH system and to be part of that whole process and have disability be something that they're talking about. Agreed. Okay, Ray. Oh, John, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for that uh, wonderful run through the uh, the data. I was, when I heard about this this morning, I, I said, I think I said to Deb, I said, oh my gosh, this is going to be boring. It was anything but. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, so uh, I can make it boring. If yeah, you no, please don't. You, you, you're done fine. Um, how much? How much do you think uh, the lack of focus on some of this from a public health perspective, you know, around people with vision impaired, f comes comes because of the idea behind? Public health is we want to cure everybody. We want to have, find cures for this or cures for that. And, you know, we a lot of times vision impairment can't. It doesn't, this microphone don't like me. Uh, vision impairment can't be cured. So how much do you think that focuses on, oh, we can't it cure is. them anyway? Uh, you're, so. you're absolutely right. You are 100% right. If you ask public health what it does, it prevents disease, injury, and disability. So if you have a disability and this, the public health agency says, we want to prevent you. We, we fail. Like, wow, that's, that's cool. Uh, sign me up. And it does not say 
We want to make you healthier. We want to make sure that you have autonomy and agency to do the things that, that you want to do with your life. So you've got to reframe these agencies like and CDC one. I work inside and I, you know, frankly, you know, what what we had this tiny little group called the Vision Health Initiative. There were typically two, three or four people in that group. <laughs> and the way the problem was solved, it's a point of view issue. That's what I was trying to get at. So if you ask people in vision and eye health, this, the, the problem is that people haven't gotten eye exams. And the solution is to get eye exams. Um, the solution is not get eye exams. If something can be done about it, great. If something cannot be done about it, then vision rehab. That's not the way it thinks. So you've got an agency, uh, a large agency that has this cultural bias against people with disabilities generally. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So you have to go in and change the dialogue, you know, and you say, you know, you can use any of the examples that we talked about today and you can find a hundred others where you say, you know, the agency said, you say you fo prevent false prevention. Does that include people with vision impairment? Well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, they haven't thought about it. Uh, and then you say, well, it sh if it doesn't, it should. I mean, it's, again, this is not an argumentative thing. No. Just ask them, you know, what are you doing? Well, we're not doing anything. Well, if, if it doesn't matter, if you don't care, tell me. But if you do care, let's do something about it. And if you don't care, we're going to find a way to make you care. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's the failure. So you're absolutely right. Uh, you've got these large organizations that, def that define the problem in one way. They define the solution in the wrong way. And, uh, and, and disability, big D disability, is, um, it is a huge problem. And I, and I don't mean to obsess about that. But having been on the inside and trying to affect the change. It's slow going. Uh, and it's harder when you're on the outside to try to influence it. Yeah, it, it, it goes back to, I think, you know, something a lot of us who've done this advocacy work for a long time have heard, you know, we we hear about the people who go to the eye doctor and says, well, your vision impaired, there's no more I can do for you. That's it. And they don't exactly. take it further and help their patients get into uh, or identify you know, services that can help them. So thank you very much. I'll give yeah. this, uh, this is somebody else. Okay, I had Gabe next. Thank you. Good. I know. Oh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Don. Oops. Thank you. Thank you. A wonderful session. I don't know what's going on now. Here, let me get you a different mic. Yeah, because it's... Hold on. I think it's working now. So, uh, John, uh, excellent data. Uh, agree with Ray. I thought it was going to be boring, but it wasn't. Uh, very eye-opening, no pun intended. But, <laughs> but I do have a couple of observations. Um, I love uh, that you bring up evidence-based intervention. Um, obviously, for that to happen, we need to uh, 
create the evidence or or find the evidence. I have to to I, I'm a little bit apprehensive and or or not so optimistic in the sense that we're going to achieve that because there's two things in science. Um, one is to have the willingness of a society to actually find the information, and once we find the information, do they really want to deal with it? So can we, as an advocacy organization, help change or move that, uh, or create the space where we can actually get funding and support to make sure that we get the scientific data that we need to get to that evidence-based intervention process? Well, you know, what I was trying to get at by using my dad as the example is that that these things can be slow. And uh, and so um, we've, you know, I've been chipping away at this for, you know, nearly 50 years and, uh, you know, have, I guess, been surprised in how little, um, how little progress we've made. But, um, but the future's there. I mean, we're, we're going to go through the future anyway, whether we, uh, whether we do anything or not, I think. And so I think we are in a, the best position now than we ever have been to make our case. So we know, for example, that NEI, that we're on NEI's agenda. Uh, I mean, they're clearly targeting the, the, uh, um, the people with vision impairment and vision rehabilitation begin to understand that, begin to understand the important low vision and so forth. So I think we, with the, it's just not the, the data that I've created. That's not the only piece of this, but you take the data and then you combine that with the stories. And then you go to places like NEI and CDC and others and just say, what are you doing about it? And, um, and, and if you ask one time, and they get rid of you, then nothing's going to happen. If you keep asking and you show up, you know, again and again and again, and start asking what's your plan, are people's vision impairment included? And pretty soon they're going to get annoyed enough that they're going to say, that guy's going to start asking about vision impairment, so we have to do something. So that's the, so we need a coordinated effort to hammer at these gaps. And, and I think... Now, here's, here's the part of the problem, I think. Two, two things, maybe. One is we can't just obsess about the problem. Uh, we, can, we figured that out. We don't, we don't need to talk about that anymore. What we need to talk about is the solution. What are the things that would improve the lives of, in this case, older people who are blind and, and low vision in the United States? One would be to have a set of evidence-based interventions that promote independence, autonomy, and agency. Uh, so that if you ask these questions that we have in this survey, that there's no difference between people with and without vision impairment. And, um, and so as long as that disparity exists, there, there's a gap. And so it's, it, it's not going to happen by itself. You know, that's the reason I say, use that John Kennedy quote, you know, things just don't happen. They're made to happen. And I think what, you know, what's incumbent upon us now is to figure out what are the potential strategies that begin to influence those decision makers. It's not a one-time thing. 
you know, I, what I tell people, I, you know, some of you will remember this, but back in 1981, Congressman Roy Bull from California held hearings on, uh, on aging and, and vision impairment and, and Title VII, the older uh, Title VII of the Rehab Act. And I gave testimony at that, uh, at that hearing, and we got $2 million as a result of, of that. And then, you know, there, the, what I would suggest is in all those years, since 1981, we haven't put pressure on Congress. We haven't done our side of this. We haven't asked the right questions. We haven't forced people to, uh, we, we've done a kind of a, a spotty job of gathering our own data, uh, organizing our own stories. So, you know, you know, I think it's, I think we can figure out some strategies to continue to chip away at it, whether we get exactly what we want in the next decade or so. What I remind, what I keep thinking about, I hate to say this in old age, I'm 77. And so, um, uh, kind of, I don't want to say time limited, <laughs> but I'm feeling that. And I think, but I still, I still think that we can collectively, we've done this before. Collectively, we can come together, create an agenda, and then just hammer away at that agenda. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Okay. Those of you in the room, are the spe is the speaker okay or is it too loud? It's good. John, this is Dan Spoon. And when you were speaking, you've challenged my paradigm that I've lived with for the last 40 years, right? So when you, when you describe the slide with the big ocean of public health, with all the different agencies under that. And then the little red circle that were the vision rehab services and the right little right circle, at least most of my career, we've spent putting military defenses around that little red circle oh, yeah. to not yeah. let anybody go take our little red circle away. And what I hear you saying, and this is an interesting paradigm shift, it's okay that we have that little red circle, but all the money and all the resources are sitting over in that big blue ocean. And how do we learn how to not just defend our little red circle, but go engage in that big blue ocean? It, exactly. It, maybe I'm a, <laughs> it's a vision. No, exactly. But that, it's, exactly it's not an either or, it's a both. Yeah. And I think the mandate, you know, the, what we what we we're not good at giving up things, frankly. If so, let's use falls as you know as an example because it's so you know don't have to do much to explain a fall. I don't care if public health supports falls inter interventions as long as they include people who are blind and have low vision. They can do it as long as they include our constituency or aging can do the false prevention. And that I, so that's fine with me. But if they don't want to, then they need to give us the money to serve that constituency. So either way, our constituents win in that. And I don't care. Who does it as long as somebody does it? And so you go to the people who have the mandate. So there's nothing in public health 
You know, I mean, I, we did, we talked about the public health point of view, prevent disease, injury, and disability. But there's nothing in public health that says we exclude some populations. Um, the whole notion of public health is to reach populations that have been excluded. But, but they don't, you know, they're not going to figure that out on their own. You know, they're, they're not, there's nobody, believe me, there's nobody in these big federal agencies who's saying, well, what should we do for people who are blind, have low vision? Unless somebody brings up the issue and says, you know, what are you doing about it? Or what should we do about it? That, 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 that concern does not emerge. So we have to be the, the, the conscience for these agencies to make them aware that there's, that, that in fact, they have an obligation to serve a broader population, including us. Yeah, John, we had this example, with the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering, right? NIBI, that was responsible for all the home COVID test kits. And we advocated with them to say, yes, unless you're blind, in which case you can't use any of these tests. Yeah, sure. And they said, by God, you're right, you can't. And now they've gone back and through their RADx program, they've funded $350 million to make home tests accessible wow. for blind people. Wow. We okay. could have never touched that in a million years, right? But somehow by awakening their consciousness, they're excited to do it. They, they prepared an almost 200-page paper to the U.S. Access Board now outlining a guideline of how you make home test kits accessible for people with disabilities. Awesome. Yeah. 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 It's a victory. So, yeah. So Huge that's victory. a victory. And there's a lot of those out there is what you're saying. You know, yeah. Absolutely. We think differently. Yeah. Chris Bell has his hand up. Yeah. Thanks, uh, John, for the, for the great work. That was certainly very interesting. Um, I struggle with what I see as a, as a normative value issue here, which seems to be going in the wrong direction. Um, you know, we're weakening child labor laws now. Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher said famously, there is no such thing as society, only individuals. And so, you know, when we look at public health funding and we look at what the resistance to public health and COVID and the anti-science thing and everything, it, to me, we're kind of going in the wrong direction. In other words, there's a whole, whole bunch of folks that basically are saying, you know, this is not, this is an individual issue. This is not a social problem. Um, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what we want to do and it's the individual's responsibility, yada, yada, yada. So, um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, in, in fact, there was, uh, um, I don't know who it was, but, but it was a kind of a sociologist or social worker and, and he was posing just your question. He said, when does an individual problem become kind of a social uh, a social problem. You know, when, when is it your problem and when is it a societal problem? And the example I use is that, uh, if, if you're unemployed, uh, it's too bad that's your problem. If I'm unemployed, <laughs> then it's a, it's a depression and we need to do something about it. And so it's kind of a point of view thing, isn't it? You know, so yep. if you can, if you feel comfortable marginalizing people, and saying, you know, you figure it out. 
you know, I, I mean, you know, you think about my dad. I mean, I, I hate to bring that up, but I think it's it's a it's an interesting example. You got a third grade education, and you don't have many choices. If you're wealthy, if you're hugely wealthy, you can buy yourself out of disability. Um, but if you're poor or middle class, you can't. So, so I think part of this effort, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. We're in this environment that is anti-science. It is, uh, um, anti-intellectual, um, and, uh, and, and will, you know, some people will just, you know, they'll believe the craziest ideas that surface instead of something, some, something that has scientific evidence. It is a crazy period that we're in. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, um, you know, it is, uh, the federal government mainly and some state governments, they're trying to make rational decisions. And, um, and I think we're better positioned to, uh, to identify opportunities for, for, for states. Now, I, you know, I, I think this is if, what we don't want to do. And, and we've all been involved in this advocacy for a long, 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 long time. What policymakers don't want to know is they don't want to know the problem. They want to know the solution. And so we've spent, I think, too much time talking about the problem. And most of the time we talk about the problem, it's an anecdotal thing. It's, a, it's our stories, which are hugely powerful. I have no doubt about the, the power of those stories. But, but the stories need to be combined with, with empirical evidence. And then we say, well, here's, here's the problem. But here's the solution. And we want you to defend, we want you to fund the solution to the problem. And we know what those solutions are, or we can give them an inventory. And I think that begins to change the dialogue because, you know, no, no policymaker is going to sit down and engage these experiences to the degree that we want them to. They just want to know, what do you want me to do? And, and I'll either, either I'll do it or I won't do it. But then that gives you some indication. And I, I just think we have not been good enough, uh, for, for, you know, for example, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. When I was within CDC, our, our agency was tiny. Our little unit was tiny within CDC. But we would go through this discussion, you know, uh, about, you know, what, could say, what kind of things should we be funding in the next funding cycle? And, um, and if you said, well, we want to put some money in division rehab. Okay, so, uh, which they didn't. I mean, uh, my, my, my boss was an ophthalmologist. She really wasn't interested in division rehab. So, again, she defined the problem in a different way. But it, it's like, I did, I, if I had had... Well, here, let me back up. We're trying to do a little paper with Lee and our research and data group. And we want to do three surveys. Uh, this is not moving along fast because we're just bootlegging it. But one survey is, is private agencies. Uh, another survey is providers. Another survey would be to consumers. And we want to, we want to ask the question, what would you like to see investigated? Tell, you tell us. What's important to you? So you don't want to say, well, what's your research agenda? Because say, I don't know, what does that mean? But you say, you know, you frame it in a way that elicits 
what those topics are that should be investigated. And then you, so you write that up into a paper and then you go to places like NEI and CDC and you say, this is the consensus of the stuff we would like to see investigated because they're not going to figure it out unless we tell them. And I, I, get, I think we've just been a little bit remiss. Well, we've been a lot remiss in doing that because we're expecting people to read our minds uh, and figure out what the solutions are. And we need to be better at articulating what it is that we want and we want them to do. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Okay. Was there one more person that had? Yeah, Doug, real quick. And you're last. There's a short answer. How's that? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. We're good, but I just want to. Doug will be the last one. Um, the other, I think part of the problem that we're confronting, and I want to bring this out because it, it might be, it might inform how we're uh, going about advocating, is that what you're talking about is public policy, which is medical, and the rehab um, format that we've been using over the years has been educational. And the statistics, the, you know, the research, and there's nobody talking to each other between those two groups. And it always drove me crazy. I, I, I was the chair of the rehab uh, task force here. And what it always drove me crazy is that there's uh, around 50% of the people who enter the rehab system don't get a job. You know, so it's 50-50 whether you, you know, when you go into the rehab uh, services, whether you're going to come out with a job or not. Why? I mean, it could be our problem. It could be their problem. But we don't know. And nobody's, well, you know, I keep asking the, the commissioner in Virginia. And he said, well, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're better than most. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a high bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I, I think it's, you know, that real little red circle includes some, uh, you know, you know the, uh, hey. the crossover between. You're done. <laughs> the mic just quit on him. Well, let, let me just make a comment. Uh, we have to go where the money is. And, uh, and, and, I, and so if you think about, think about this. Think about this. You, you've, you've all been involved with private agencies on their boards or running them. And the private agency model is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. You've got an executive director out there beating the bushes, trying to raise money for to provide rehab services to their constituency. The constituents come in the front door and, uh, and then you have a cadre of staff and there is no association between the number of people that you're serving and the income that the agency derives. So you've got- Well, there is. The more people you serve, the less money you have. Yeah, exactly. So you get, so it should, so, but the PT who's got an office next door or the OT, the more people they got coming in the door, the more money they're making. It's a crazy model, isn't it? Now, if medicine were doing the same thing, if there's a doctor out on the street, you know, and he says, I got 10 patients who need surgeries, and each one is going to cost $100,000, could you give me some money so I can do those surgeries? I mean, it's crazy. Exactly. And we've, 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 that's our model. That's how it evolved. Yes. 
And I think we need to rethink that and figure out, you know, who's got the money. Yes, exactly. And then, and then figure out, you know, okay, you got the money. I figured that part out. You, you're, you're, and now you tell me what evidence you need. This is what the Lee's working on right now as we speak. She's going to tell you about it. But you tell me what kind of evidence you need to pay for these services. And then we respond to that. We say, okay, if that's what you need. We're going to show you the evidence that what we're doing is reimbursable. And, and we just, we, we, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, honestly, I went through the Vision Rehabilitation Program at Western Michigan University, 1976. Jimmy Carter was president. And, uh, and there was a OTs right next door to us. We were all in the Department of Education. And I look, I've been talking to Ruth Carlala, who's this wonderful, wonderful woman, you know, and some of the other people who were there. And I said, how come OT's got licensure and people in vision rehab don't? And she's, you know, I was young, you know, I was trying to figure this out. And she said, well, you don't need a license because you're going to work for schools, you work for state agency. And, uh, and that was kind of the, that was the belief. Well, if you think 50 years ago, if somebody had said we need to get licensure for, uh, for people in vision rehab, we'd be at a very different place. So, you know, mm-hmm. now those 50 years have passed. I can't do anything about that, but mm-hmm. we have to move to the future. But we've got to compete. Right. We've got to compete with uh, OTs, PTs, um, and, 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 and go where the money is. That's just my view. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. This has been great. I just wanted to make a real quick comment from my world. I'm really ready to go back into the field with this data because um, um, my background, I was uh, part of Vision Rehab for years, and I kind of saw what Doug was talking about, and it wasn't really working. And I moved the older blind program out of the Vision Rehab Agency and into the University of Washington Medical Center. Mm. Um, that was a very, very interesting uh, move. Everybody thought they were supposed to bring all their clients to my office, but that wasn't quite right. So, um, but what that gave us was the whole array of services, uh, most of which could fund our program, frankly, if you did it right. And it gave us a whole new creation of referrals that was a lot more accurate than the people who happened to wander into the blind agency. So the fact that you had come into the medical center for whatever, and they spotted that you had vision issues as part of that, that triggered automatically sort of a notification of us. But it didn't necessarily trigger that our little limited vision staff came down and did the work, because why would we need to necessarily um, if we were there to consult? The other piece of that back, you know, because of the issue of... um, vision services being off in their own little silo, uh, not only uh, did you not live really with the OTs when you had that training, but you also didn't get enough cross-disability training. So you knew all about vision, but you didn't know much about what else. And one of the things that motivated me to move out was watching the fact that our agency didn't know how to deal with blind people who had very complex multiple disabilities. And they were trying to deal with the vision 
but they weren't dealing with any of the rest of it that was impacting them, including things like severe and significant cerebral palsy, significant mm -hmm. other. So they got a little better at hearing loss because we had a big deaf-blind population, but really, honestly, all the rest of it they just missed by yeah. miles. So, um, oh, you can't learn to use a screen reader because you can't use a keyboard well because the keys for your you know, keyboard ac uh, access we gave you conflict with the screen reader, so I guess you can't have a job that requires that. No. So, uh, so I just think this whole, uh, I'm not really personally in favor of bumping up the small dot. I am really in favor of shifting that whole thing into the general system because it was working for us and we haven't had mm -hmm. the older blind program inside the blindness agency for 10 years and it has a really high impact. So um, just as a thought. Um, I want to thank you all for, uh, for uh, being in here this morning for this. Um, you all don't trust me enough yet about what's boring <laughs> and not boring. Um, I come from a research university, and I actually know when we're looking at fun stuff. And so, um, so hopefully you did find this interesting. They have a whole website of, of the data, and the, and the data is actually changing. You can go up to the Vision Serve Alliance website and, and see all of that. And our uh, next item is actually going to be uh, presented by uh, Lee Nasahi. And I think this is pretty exciting stuff, too. So we'll see what you all think. Um, for, for those of you who are uh, working on the, what I, the boardometer, it's like, how, how bored are we yet? So we're not going to be. Um, we're going to talk about the uh, Medicare expenditure reimbursement model for rehabilitation services. And this um, makes really good sense in, as one of the steps in terms of the things that we've already been doing. This is also a project that um, ACB has been integrally involved with. And um, so, uh, Lee, why don't you uh, talk to us about where we are so far with, oh, Dan? And we approved funding. That's right. At our last board meeting, we approved Thank some funding you. to participate. And so let's let's talk about this. Okay, super. Thank you. I'm going to share my screen again. You have the slides. They're really just a guide for me um, as I'm, I'm talking through this. And John's presentation, of course, uh, is not just a setup for my my presentation, but is all of the work that we did together on that data is enabling or compelling us in this next step of Medicare exploration. So um, the kind of research that John does is translational. And, you know, when you look at, it's just mind boggling when you think about how much research and studies, particularly surveillance, um, how, how much money is spent on all of that? And then what happens to it, right? What, what, so what? What do they do with it? We want it to be actionable. Well, our aging and vision loss big data project is very actionable. There's so many things that we can do with it. And one of the things is that we can use it as uh, the second piece of evidence along with our stories. And now we go talk to federal agency staff and elected officials about all this to see what what can be done to change um, the the woeful inadequacy of the funding. So once again, thank you for 
contributing to this, investing in this. It's, uh, I think, pretty important work. So, so what are we doing here? Um, we agreed at the Vision Serve Alliance Board in the spring um, based on a number of advisors we had spoken to who were familiar with CMS and some of the changing landscape. Certainly the priorities of this administration and um, some of the innovation that we saw happening in the way healthcare was being paid for, that this was a good year for us to try to explore options for getting more paid for. Because I, it was in one of John's slides, and I think most of you know this, but it's generally accepted that um, only 5% at best, a little bit less than that actually, of older adults who could benefit from vision rehab are receiving services of any kind. And unfortunately, we, we all know that a lot of those services are very inadequate. So um, when I became acutely aware of this, working through the aging and vision loss national coalition that we put together our first year at Vision Serve Alliance, I have to say I was just ashamed of our field that we could allow this, our most significant population of our constituency to languish like this. It was just, how could this happen? Why doesn't, why isn't anybody doing about it, anything about it? So the, who's going to do something about it? It's us. So um, based on that, we uh, led to a retainer with the Powers Law Firm. Um, Peter Thomas and Leela Baggett. Peter is the um, principal attorney there. And I think some of you at least know Peter and Powers. They manage a number of coalitions, healthcare-related coalitions. One of them is the Item Coalition. And for decades, they've been pushing to get all kinds of items added to Medicare's list of reimbursement, including low vision devices. So I have served on that committee, that coalition, I've been involved with it and felt like Peter would be a good advocate for us. He understands a lot of, of what um, we need to do and we're all helping him understand the rest of what he needs to know. So um, we are doing, we're trying to accomplish three things. Highlight the need for greater recognition of vision rehabilitation providers we just talked about that a lot in the first couple hours. Educate policymakers on the importance of better coverage of vision rehab services. And finally, we hope to make headway in terms of access to care for Medicare beneficiaries, as well as potentially other payers, maybe Medicaid and others. So why now, as opposed to, say, 15 years ago, when we tried this then too? <laughs> well, one, of course, is our aging and visual loss big data project. We finally have really compelling data, um, evidence that we can connect with the story. The incidence and prevalence of low vision and blindness can be shown to have a material impact on the demands of nursing home care, institution-based versus independent living, interaction and community activities, and overall physical and mental health status. These are all human problems, and I like to think about the individual first. It's the first and last question I always ask. But these are all huge cost centers for the federal government, too. 
the health equity and health disparities agenda is first and foremost in the Biden administration. And so that gives us a different opportunity, a different environment to spearhead a full court press on this issue within the health and disability federal agencies. Um, and between the lack of coverage of vision rehab services and the total bar and coverage of low vision aids and technologies, a compelling case can be made that the entire sector of the disability community is being systematically underserved. And that ruling that came out uh, that you mentioned, Deb, or maybe it was Kim, um, uh, about uh, disabilities in general is, is going to be helpful to this, I think, to our movement. So there's a lot of good reasons for us to move forward with this. There's also formidable obstacles. We're probably more familiar with the obstacles, but I'll, I'll just mention a few of them. Um, certified low vision therapists, certified orientation and mobility specialists, and certified vision rehabilitation therapists, the three main provider types who provide vision rehabilitation services are not recognized as eligible Medicaid providers which has significant ripple effects with other healthcare payers. So, you know, they're not medically licensed. We all know that. And so that's been the, the, the barrier up until now. These providers are not state licensed. They rely on private certification by ACVREP. And on top of that, low vision aids and technologies are currently barred from Medicare coverage. So CMS is, is, um, is not considering that yet. Although they're listening, there has been a, lot, a little bit of movement and I, th I think it's a different environment. You know, the, the strangest thing to me, I've started serving on some international committees and realized that there is a long tradition of not covering anything related to vision throughout the world. So sensory deprivation, same, same thing for hearing. Um, Somebody asked that earlier, uh, why is this? And it's, it's not just how we positioned ourselves in the field as educational versus medical. I mean, there just has been this exclusion of anything related to vision for such a long time that I really can't understand. So recent history, I want to make sure everybody is aware of the fact that there was something called the low vision demonstration oops, get rid of this the low vision demonstrate uh, low vision rehabilitation demonstration project um, CMS conducted it at Congress's direction between 2006 and 2011 it was actually vision serve Alliance who spearheaded this with a number of partners um, and it was actually passed in the 2003 Congress but it took three years to stand it up and what was that? That was sort of a pilot project that CMS enabled our ACVREP certified staff in five or six sites to provide vision rehabilitation services and bill CMS for reimbursement for that. And so during that project, billing codes and reimbursements for the services were extended to vision service providers certain codes and reimbursement amounts still exist today. However, they're only used by occupational therapists. So the question is, could we convince CMS 
with this evidence of how many people need services, could benefit from services, how many people are not getting services, but instead end up, say, in nursing homes where they probably shouldn't be, could we get them to think about reactivating uh, the codes and making them available for our staff? Now, the CDC did deem this project unsuccessful, so that's part of the obstacles. Um, but the reason it was unsuccessful were sort of things that didn't have anything to do with, with vision rehabilitation. It was the whole network. They didn't get very many referrals. Doctors, especially 15 years ago, doctors were not referring the way um, we know we still have problems with that today, but it's much better today. But back then it was really hard for them to get the referrals they needed. So they didn't serve that many, as many people as the CMS wanted to see. And then the other thing is low vision devices weren't included in this. And so it, you, know, you can't provide training without devices. The two go together. Also, I don't think you should provide devices without training, but, but there you go. Um, okay. So next slide. So our strategy for this project is using powers on retainer to help us gather information. Um, there, we're also considering a literature review, a professional literature review, which I think is super important. But we're gathering articles, testimony, input from the fields. We'd love anything that ACB is thinking about that's relevant to this to help educate them and build a case statement that then they, with me and others from our coalition, will take to different federal agencies and, and elected officials. And I'll talk to you about who those are. Um, and after about three months of this, we're going to regather in a roundtable meeting of some type and kind of process what we've learned and decide what are the next steps. Um, and before I start talking about those particular meetings, I'll say that I think what's going to, what we're going to learn out of this is that we do need still additional evidence because we now have really good evidence of the problem through the big data project. But as we've already discussed, there's not a lot of evidence based outcomes that kind of research regarding the efficacy of vision rehabilitation. Now, perhaps the literature review that we're going to conduct will give us some of that. Um, but at the very least, we feel like this effort will position us well to advocate for additional research funding for some of these studies. So the strategic meetings that we are, are going to pursue, um, and I just wonder what the shutdown is going to do to all this. So we may, it may take longer than three months, but our goal was to have all these meetings done by December to meet with traditional fee for service Medicare staff to discuss the health equity issue, right? This is a health equity issue and talk about the existing codes for low vision services, the current inability of certified low vision providers other than occupational therapists. They, they can bill using those codes and do to use those codes to provide services to Medicare beneficiaries and what changes they would need to make to expand codes for these billing purposes. I mean, the, the demonstration project was 15 years ago, so they're 
there will, I'm sure, have to be some tweaking, but the basic work is done. We also want to meet with the Medicare Advantage staff at CMS to propose that they encourage Advantage plans to cover low vision services provided by all of our folks um, as extra benefits under that program, which they're authorized to do. We're also meeting with another consultant, Sharon Williams, who's helping educate us on all the opportunities that currently exist for community-based organizations to become part of these healthcare hubs. Right now, there's no law needs to change. It's just a matter of, of working relationships. And I, I hope to have at least webinar one webinar before the end of the year to teach our members anyone's interested in what opportunities are out there and how to go become involved in that. So, you know, that could be separate, but Medicare Advantage plans are, are uh, sleek negotiators. And I know some of our member organizations have already attempted to negotiate with them and it's not been easy, but it's still an opportunity. We also want to meet with the CMF staff responsible for administering the skilled nursing facilities program. Um, because there's additional uh, research and articles now, John Cruz involved in those as well, that indicates over 60% of nursing home populations being people with low vision and blindness. I mean, that's extraordinary. And that is their single biggest expense in CMS. So I think they'll be interested to hear this. Um, we want to meet with the Center on Medicaid also to discuss the similar issues and, and especially nursing home care, the high prevalence of low vision and blindness and explore ways to address these concerns. This is another opportunity. I, they do look to see what CMS does. So if we can make progress with CMS if, on Medicare, it will make it easier for Medicaid. But it doesn't necessarily have to happen in that order. There are some of our private agencies, because Medicaid is a state program, who have um, negotiated to have some of their vision rehabilitation services reimbursed by Medicare, Medicaid. We will also meet with the National Council on Disability senior staff to educate them and seek their assistance in framing this issue as a health equity and health disparity issue for people with disabilities. We'd like to meet with the House Disability Caucus and Senate leaders. And I mean, they know a lot of this stuff, but we still feel like they're, they must be missing something if we're still in this situation, right? And um, we are considering meeting with the American Healthcare Association to familiarize them with the connection between low vision and blindness and the nursing home population. We would also like to meet, we intend to meet with RSA. I have never actually spoken with, um, oh, now her name's just a slipped my mind. What's the name of the commissioner at RSA? Nobody? I can't, I, I, it's a, a Freudian no, slip. Anyway. Nobody's answering Lee. <laughs> okay. They all have the same look on their face as you do. Oh, yeah, it's just, I know who she is. I've written to her a lot of times, but I would like, really like to sit down and talk with her. Um, I didn't see on this list, maybe I skipped over a slide, but we're also going to meet with NEI and 
try to connect the dots between their strategic plan and our research and our the needs of our population and the woefully inadequate funding. Um, we're not looking to them to give us funding, but we would like them to consider funding additional research that we need. And um, the development of evidence-based programs that are accessible, not just accessible in the in terms of the program manual, but the whole program is needs to be overhauled a little bit in order to be appropriate for people who are blind and visually impaired. And then at the end of the three months, we'll meet with all of our investors and stakeholders who are interested in this and share the work that has been gathered. I mean, we're going to share that along the way. We, we, we're still gathering the case statement this week, but next week we should have some progress. And once a week, maybe every other week, we will put out a bulletin to everyone so that you know what's happening. But um, once we have completed our investigation, we will gather with everyone and share that and decide, is there enough reason for us to move forward? I'm sure there's going to be some steps we all agree we need to take. So we'll decide that together. One of them may be that we continue to retain powers for an additional nine months or so to try to get one of these specific things done, such as CMS reactivating the G-codes to make it possible for ACVREP certified staff to be reimbursed for providing vision rehabilitation services. So that's an overview. Um, you know, one of the one of the comments in the earlier presentation was that we're we're not we're not curing anything in vision rehabilitation. Perhaps that's why we've been left out. But OTs and PTs don't cure anything either. And it's, you know, a well-accepted practice that you break a leg and after you have surgery, um, you meet with someone who a PT is going to help you learn how to use that leg again. And there's there may be situations, there are lots of situations you could see an OT, a PT, or a speech therapist that doesn't involve surgery. It's just how to make those parts of your body, how to work with that better. And that's what vision rehabilitation is, is learning how to work with what you have. So I don't see it as completely outside of, of what we're used to in American healthcare. Um, but it is the history and the way we have framed the pi paradigm up until this point that I, that I think has gotten us here. I, I totally agree with, uh, John's paradigm of, you know, the big blue ocean or, uh, set of funding and policies uh, and, and benefits that we exist outside of. But our constituents are their constituents too. Our constituents, our stakeholders are members of the aging um, population and the public health population. And I think that it's time that we help them remember that. So the questions or comments or discussions, I'd really like to know what you all think about this pursuit. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you, Lee. This is Dan. Uh, question. So 
define success for us. What is success at the end of this effort? Um, it is having met with all of these federal agencies, having had a conversation where we're able to share our case statement. We, we suspect that maybe none of them know any of this, right? So it's an education process. Having met with them and then ascertaining what opportunities, based on our meetings with all of them, there are for advancing public funding, not just through CMS, but also Medicaid and, and other, you know, possibly RSA, possibly aging. So it, it's an exploration. It's an inquiry. We will learn how the federal agencies and some elected officials feel once they know, have this data and see what our opportunities are to move forward to try to expand that. Uh, there we go. Uh, <clears throat> Lee, a um, couple quick questions. It doesn't even give me two minutes. There we go. It cut me off. Um, it, it knows me too well. If Terry was here, we'd it'd probably know her too. But anyway, um, so a couple quick questions. One is, um, at, at the end of the day, how, how do you feel it? Do you think it would be worthwhile, you know, probably after, you know, further down the road, but meeting, getting some of these big, powerful organizations that have strong lobbying ties in D.C., such as AARP and American Diabetes Association, others in, you know, in, involved in trying to coalesce with them around helping uh, move some of this forward. And the second question I have as a state affiliate president is, what are some things that we can be doing? Because sometimes change comes from the states. What are some yeah. things we could be doing in our states around some of this? What state are you in? Illinois. Oh, yeah. I think there's probably some opportunities there right now. Mm-hmm. So I I mentioned something called, um, it's called a community care hub or health care hub. So there are now these structures being formed in regions around health care but including organizations that and services that we would not, we have not traditionally thought of as healthcare services. As an example, um, a healthcare hub could include a mental health center, a federally qualified health center, but also a food bank. Um, it, it does include sometimes the area agency on aging's office. Um, I think a vision rehabilitation community-based a vision rehabilitation provider would fit into it very neatly. And they negotiate reimbursement packages being part of the plans through Medicare Advantage plans locally. So that's one of the webinars that I'm trying quickly to put together before the end of this year to help teach our advocates, our stakeholders about these opportunities and, and learn how to get involved with what's happening in your community. Same thing with Medicaid. Um, it, Medicaid is different in every state and it takes a relationship with the Medicaid administrators, educating them about the efficacy of vision rehabilitation services and what's available. And, um, you know, start slow with a, a few, th- a few services, but 
I think there's opportunity there. So those are two things. We have Gabe next. Okay. Thanks. Um, Hi, Lee. Hi, Gabe. Gabe. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Great to have you with us. Um, So, um, unfortunately, I wasn't aware of the... um, the demonstration project that happened between 2006 and 2011. For the past eight years, we have been uh, going to Capitol Hill either virtually or in person. Um, And I think consistently we've been asking for this demonstration project, again, through CMS, um, five-year demonstration project. Um, We keep finding, hitting the the wall with it because of the famous uh, lens exclusion. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, we're, we happen to be in Jacksonville. I think uh, Congressman Villarocas has been just steadfast supporter of this, you know, reintroducing it every year. Um, do you think the, the actual, uh, uh, quote unquote, lack of success from the first project is affecting this second leg of the project that we have been advocating for? Um, maybe. Have you guys met with CMS? Or you, you're just talking about talking with Congress? Right now, I'm just talking about our, you know, Capitol Hill advocacy. I don't know yeah. if anyone else here in leadership has met with, with anyone in CMS. I don't think so. Dan, Deb? Oh, we, we have. Okay, sorry. I take that back. <laughs> yeah. So they probably are aware of it, but I wouldn't be afraid to talk about it front and center. And we have um, we have the evaluation reports. If anybody wants to read those, I'm happy to share that with you, so you know what you're talking about. But the failure was those two things: was that low vision devices weren't covered, and that not enough people participated in it because we didn't have the networks back then to have physicians refer into it. It was also they were done in weird places, and you know some small rural i mean it was new york city was one of the places so that's not small or rural Mm -hmm. but new hampshire was another site and a couple of rather rural sites in north carolina atlanta and um so i think there's it, it shouldn't be a dead end because of that and and i think all the significant work where you have to go through first of all you have to decide they decide which diagnoses is eligible for services that work has been done um credentialing the staff that could bill from our group that work has been done developing the scope of work the services itself that they will reimburse and and assigning g-codes to it that work has been done and it's still there so our question is to them will be can we get just get this reactivated? Maybe it would be a demonstration project. We're going to ask the question in a lot of different ways. So we don't want to, we want to offer solutions. As John said, we're not just saying here's the problem. We have a few solutions, but we're open to doing it different ways. Now, Gabe and everybody, one of my concerns is that there are so few ACVREP certified staff in this country right now. Is everybody aware of that? Yes. Yeah. So if um, CMS adds this, you know, reactivates this, makes this part of Medicare, it has to be offered everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of a problem. 
right? Yep. But what, what we want to still offer it as a solution and then figure out what we need to do to have it offered everywhere. But it is one of my concerns. Thank you, Lee. Mm-hmm. All right, and we have Doug, and then I think Clark wants to talk. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. I'm sorry. Uh, Lee, could you... Uh, uh, this is sort of going back to John. I don't know if you have the information or John has the information. I think it would be useful for us to hear which states have big data uh, already and which states still need advocacy at that level to get the big data done in their state. Oh, great. Can I send you that list rather than dig around in my computer for it? Yeah. There, I think there's still maybe 25 states left that haven't gotten it. So I, I'll send you the list. Okay. So a comment and a question. And, and Lee, I'm not going to mention Medicaid once today since I almost always do. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so my comment is if we get any traction with Medicare Advantage, there are several ACB members, I probably have the least amount of connections, but several others do too, with Centene, out, which mm-hmm. is headquartered you know, out of St. Louis there. And they have like over 30, uh, I think, Medicare Advantage plans. So keep that in yeah. mind if, if, they, if there's any traction on that level. The question I have is... Um, I, for example, and I'm sure there are others, have a, a congressman who is my representative who is very impactful on Medicare, but isn't... Oh, sorry. I'll eat it. Um, uh, my congresswoman is very impactful on Medicare, but isn't um, one of the aging leaders. She's sponsored mm-hmm. our bills before. Um, are we at a point where it is worth contacting uh, members such as her, and if we are, or if that point exists, will um, you come out with some sort of a message so that whenever such a visit occurs, yeah. it is... I'd say we're up. not at that point yet. Okay. That's what this project is for, is for us to get our ducks in a row, have have a, a clear case statement, have our facts straight, and absolutely share it with everyone. As John said, we all need to work on this together. Now, I far be it for me to say don't meet with your Congress yeah, people no, in between because there's plenty of other things you could talk about. But I think it's going to be enormously helpful. I mean, that's why I want to do this. I want to go through this and, and get our ducks in a row and figure out what are the – it's so complex, you know? Yeah. When yeah. I, as I've talked to stakeholders, I've interviewed lots of stakeholders through this process. What do you think about this? What has your experience been? And nobody has the whole picture yet. Everybody has little bits and pieces. So that's the other thing that I guess I'll say, Dan, in, in answer to your question, well, how do we define success? Mm-hmm. We're going to have a really good collection of information and a clearer statement of what is and isn't and how we move forward. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lee. Mm-hmm. Jeff, while you still have the microphone, um, Related to um, Advantage programs, we actually had a resolution that we passed in 2022 to try to work Mm -hmm. through Advantage programs to leverage them for low vision aids in in, in, uh, rehab services. Yeah, I think that was aimed at skilled nursing facilities. And I I actually, uh, we did send that to uh, Lee and we'll send it again just in case it uh, has some kind of an impact on what what you're doing right now, what we're 
doing right now. So yeah, we can send that. Leah, this really feels like an area we all need to learn a little bit more about. We, we hear about oh, traditional yeah. Medicare and Medicaid, but the Advantage programs is where so many people are living now. Yeah, Exactly. I mean, that's the other thing that I, I like to sneak in these conversations. It's not just about the money. Um, I'm on Medicare now myself. I bet lots of us here are. And everything happens through Medicare, right? And if you're not part of that party, you're missing out on a lot. So I, I think there's a lot of compelling reasons for us to try to get involved. Um, there's, uh, I think that's Penny. Penny has her hand up. Hi, Lee, this is Penny. Um, I have a, a kind of a more general question, but I wonder what research have you done about what goes on in the rest of the world? What about countries where they have socialized medicine? Are they serving an older population with vision loss and are they successful? Yes, um, I haven't done extensive research on it, but I mentioned I sit on a couple of coalitions or committees uh, where uh, it's, it's discussed and I don't think services are adequate anywhere, but if you the countries that have socialized medicine do cover vision rehabilitation. And and do they reimburse their certified professionals in that area? I think I, their I, certified I, professionals are licensed. Right. So um, anyway, I was just thinking mm -hmm. it might be another way to approach it if we say, yeah, well, no, it happens here. Why isn't it happening in our country? You know, yeah. I don't know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Lee, Lee, this is Clark. Can you hear me? Hi, Clark. Yes. Hello. And also look forward to spending some time with you in the, the coming week. Yeah. Um, so just a couple, a couple points here. Can it touching my face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just a couple points of clarification. Not that one. We're switching to this one. Awesome. So a couple points of clarification. So, uh, Gabe, you're exactly right with the... Um, Medicare low vision device demonstration bill. That was a growth out of the low vision services demonstration because devices were not covered and they counted that as a barrier. That's why we were pushing for the past 10 years for a demonstration program to provide device coverage. Um, ACB, along with VisionServe and others, are part of another coalition, the Innovation Through Excellence in Medicare and Medicaid Services, or ITEM Coalition, where we've been looking at regulatory and legislative approaches to covering low vision devices, um, low vision services, and frankly, uh, vision coverage through Medicare and Medicaid. In that work, the Medicare low vision device demonstration bill is still the only bipartisan legislative vehicle. So there's many other proposals that are full vision hearing dental coverage through Medicare. Those are not bipartisan. They're, hmm. they're great Didn't messaging bills, but the likelihood of them moving forward due to them being supported only by one party and that party not being in the majority in the House are very slim. Also, it comes with a very large price tag to do that as well. Um, we tried last Congress to get that included in the Build Back Better Act. It was, then vision got taken out, then hearing got taken out, and then dental yeah. got taken out. So 
That work is ongoing. Outreach to CMS is ongoing. And of course, uh, Lee, as we work with you on uh, this this project regarded to low vision services, if there's a way for ACB to be helpful in Oh yeah, outreach. you will be part of the dream team that meets yep. with them when we're talking about this. Yep. So absolutely. Um, we, <laughs> we've done quite a bit. Uh, Jeff Tom knows we've done quite a bit of outreach to um, the CMS administrator and also we have a great relationship with the National Council on Disability which right. did, which has included you know visual accessibility um, for durable medical equipment in their mm-hmm. health equity framework in the last year so that um, they're a great ally in this space. Absolutely. Oh yeah, Clark, I'm going to be holding your hand. <laughs> Anybody else? Um, you know, there's a couple of other things that I, I didn't mention in my formal presentation, but I'll just make sure everybody knows that um, the provision of Medicare or getting reimbursed by Medicare, even if you're eligible to do that, is not a simple thing, right? So there's a lot of misunderstanding in our field that uh, would they they believe that if we if CMS would deem our professionals eligible for reimbursement, that they could just hang a shingle out and set up providing vision rehab services and bill Medicare tomorrow. And um, it doesn't happen like that. If we get, if we're successful in this, our providers still have to work for an organization that is a Medicare provider. It's a process just to become a Medicare provider, which includes um, possibly the most formidable thing about it is you have to agree to use their software and billing processes and they're expensive. They're complicated. It's easy to have your bills rejected. It is not something you set up without a significant investment. So I, I personally believe it's worth it. We know organizations out there that are actually making a margin doing this with OTs. It is possible, but it is not a simple process and it does take investment. Uh, we will also be offering, we've had a couple already webinars out of VisionServe to explain that whole process process to providers so they have an idea and we'll do more of that. Oh, and I forgot, and you still have to get a prescription from a physician. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> any, any other questions, thoughts, concerns? Lee, I see no hands in the room, and I don't see anything in Zoom either. So I don't know if anybody has been waiting and would like to raise your hand in either space. Okay, good. Well, I will send you the list of states that um, are still hoping for, that that could be written if we can get um, funding for $10,000. I'll also tell you that we are, we have launched the next phase of our big data project that will be doing a similar study, not exactly the same, um, but looking at working age adults, 16, I'm sorry, 18 years old to 64 years old. And we will not be comparing that population who report, who said yes to the questions John mentioned in BRFSS and ACS to those who answered no. Instead, we'll be comparing those who are working to those who are not everybody in the study will be people who answered yes to that question of blindness and low vision. 
So, um, but we will do the same kind of by state county prevalence and then look at the disparity, health equity issues, social determinants of health and see if we can start to glean what the obstacles to work may be for the population not working. I, I guess what I'm struck by is that the, the enormity, the, the magnitude of all the policies that we have issued in this country without any data around this, right. it just blows my mind. Yeah. There is a lot of things we're going to learn from all of these. And and then I, I hope it will spur another 10 years of discussion and policy improvement and more research. We're still going to need lots more research. Mm-hmm. Lee, this is Dan. Do you think it will be able to touch the next round of surveying on not just employed or not employed, but underemployed, which I think is, yeah, you know, no, like a, that is a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's part of it. Okay, And the other thing that I was thinking of was working Americans versus working visually impaired or blind Americans and then not working visually impaired and blind people. Well, we did consider that at first, but then we just thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so complicated. I see John is back. John, would you like to comment on? on Yeah, I'm sorry. I stepped away. I was beating the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, let me let me tell you. We have. Uh, j- j- tell me. You can tell me. This is more information than you want. We're going to. We're using the BRFSS data. Now you're expert in that instead of the American Community Survey data. Right. In the BRFSS, as opposed to the American Community Survey, there are eight categories of uh, uh, act of employment or activity. I guess what I've described. The categories are, are you working for somebody else? Are you working for yourself? Have you been unemployed less than a year, unemployed more than a year, retired, uh, unable to work, which is kind of an interesting category, student, and then there's like a homemaker category. So that's, uh, that's eight. That's all eight categories. So we're looking at each of those categories by income, race, ethnicity, sex, uh, education, chronic conditions, health related quality of life, and the disability measures. You know, so I've shared all that with you already. And so the profiles are emerging. And, um, and so what I, the glimpse I can give you is, uh, and, and, and just so you know, for this study, which is a, a, a kind of a limitation, um, is that we're, we're only looking at people who report blindness and low vision. We're not, we're not comparing them with people without vision impairment. Um, which we could do, but it just makes the study kind of bigger. But um, so what's interesting is that if you look at the health profile of people who are working and not and working for others and working for themselves, it's pretty good by and large. Uh, and then if you look at students, it's uh, it's pretty good. So there's people who are students who are coming into the workforce, their health, their profile is pretty good. For the people who report that they are unable to work, um, 
there's there's just lots of stuff going on that probably means that's accurate. I mean, there's high high kidney disease, very 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 high uh, diabetes, a lot of things that could impact upon their ability to work. So all of this is means. We're just reporting the means within each of those groups, which means that there's a range, and it's hard to capture that. But I think what has been striking to me about the uh, the people who are working, and I don't have I don't have all those numbers in front of me. I will soon have this memorized by the time I get these reports done. Uh, but is is the high level of the? Well, no, let me put it this way: is the relatively low income among people who are working. And so I think your question is, you know, are people underemployed? It's, it's yeah, it, it is. And so there's, there's there's places in this. So this data, now this, this is what's so interesting to me about doing this kind of research. It's going to take you folks, it's going to take people who understand the territory to examine these patterns and begin to tease out what we need to know. It's just not the, it's just not the numbers, it's kind of interpreting those numbers. So for one thing, if you are 55 years old and, uh, and, and can't get a job, you might say, I'm retired, rather than say I'm unemployed. It's just socially desirable to say I'm retired than un- I can't get a job. So there's going to be some people who are in that retirement group, even though we're looking at people 64 and under, who probably you could you could snare them. You could you could convince them that they, you know, if you could if you could if you could remove the barriers, they could go back to work. So so I think this is going to be hugely informative. And then I think the uh, the other piece of this is looking at those people who say that they have been unemployed less than a year and more than a year, you know, and then trying to see what those patterns suggest to us about um, what those barriers are. Now, we, there's a lot we won't. We, there's a lot we will know, and there's a lot we won't know yeah. because the survey does not get at things like employer attitudes, lack of equipment, lack of training, uh, those sorts of things. Um, but we will. But but even this huge data dump that we're creating, it's going to be so interesting as you look at that and then just try to figure out, try to unearth what's going on within that. So I think I think it's going to be a it's going to grab a lot of attention and and I think it's going to be useful to people. So thanks, Tom. John. This is Chris Bell. Can you talk a little bit about the quality of life? Uh, category like yeah what, what does that mean and how yeah yeah so much about expectations well it, that's a that's a real good question so in the uh i've published a couple of articles i there are three articles that have been published on health related quality of life and among people with vision impairment and i've published i was the lead author on two and second author on the third so not much has been done but within the brfss there are four health-related quality of life questions. And they were developed by a guy named Matt Zach, who is this treasure at, at CDC. He's a wonderful guy. He's very self-effacing. He's super smart, but self-effacing, very kind and generous. So the questions are, um, the, first, the first question is a self-reported health question. So he asked people, um, uh, describe your health as as the response categories are fair, are poor, fair, 
uh, good, very good, and excellent. And um, and so it's a self-report question, but it's really, you know, you have to pay attention to that because we're all very good res- uh, informants when somebody asks us, uh, you know, how we feel. Uh, we we kind of titrate that response, you know, and if you say, oh, I'm okay, that probably means it's fair or poor, right? You know, how do you really feel? So th- so that's a good question. And so what I have done in some of this research that we were, we were presenting to you is we 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 uh, show the percentage of people who report fair or poor health, uh, and and then you can infer the people who report excellent, very good, uh, poor health. But if you look then, if you look at the multiple chronic conditions, the people are reporting people with vision impairment, older people with vision impairment, much more likely to report fair or poor health than people without vision impairment. So that tells you a lot. Just knowing that tells you a lot. Then the other three questions ask. How many days out of the last 30 has your health prevented you from doing the things that you want to do? Uh, And so the responses are zero to 30. So you get a really wide response to that. So the first question is, how many days out of the last 30 has your physical health been poor? How many days out of the last 30 has your mental health been poor? And then how many days out of the last 30 have you been limited in your activities i think i think that's probably the question typically the way that's analyzed is that you report the percentage of people who report 14 or more days unhealthy days out of those or you can alternatively you can just report the number of days but what we see what you know just as you again this is the story that we're telling when you start looking at chronic um uh, the, the number of chronic conditions, lack of access to health care, all of that ends up with these higher percentages of people reporting uh, poor health-related quality of life. Now, I believe, and I think this is where we often make mistakes in assessing what it is that we do, because we're, I think we're often too granular. Um, the, and th- and this, this gets exactly to what Lee is talking about. Um, I think we may often measure the wrong things. So if in say, you know, I was a, I was a rehab teacher, you know, and so, you know, you do things like uh, slicing, dicing and chopping. That's what you do. And um, and so we measure that. And as a clinician, you want to know if that's what you're going to address. You want to know if somebody can do something. You want to know if they want to do it. And then you and then if they, if they want to do it, then you teach them to do that. That's fine. But that's not what a policymaker wants to know. You don't want to go in and say we had 300 people and we taught them all to slice, dice, and chop. Mm-hmm. What you want to say is that the people that we served had better health-related quality of life, meaning autonomy, agency, uh, and the capacity to do what they wanted to do. So if you're measuring, if you're back here measuring this this granular thing, that's not going to resonate with the policymaker. So you have to figure out how you aggregate this information and ask the right questions. So I'll just give you an example. We, we watch a lot of uh, news. We you know we watch CNN and MSNBC, and uh, and the demographic is old people who have various health conditions. So every, all the commercials are around you know you take this medicine and you're going to have friends <laughs> and uh and, and you and you're doing social things well that's quality of life is having that social interaction and that's really what vision rehab 
provides to people. They can do what they want to do and be who they want to be with. And, um, and we're not, we're not measuring that. So we have to kind of alter these, uh, uh, what it is that we measure or expand what it is that we measure in order to compete into, in, into that. You know, you, you know, it's like you think about, you know, if you have surgery, you know, they're not reporting that, you know, there is some organ, you know, I got a quadruple bypass, you know, it's like you get the quadruple bypass and you're alive and you can continue to, to, to produce. So that's what gets measured. Does that help? All right, we need to uh, wrap it up, it looks like. And hasn't this been an amazing morning? Yeah. Thank you to uh, Lee and John for all of this insight. And um, I'm, I'm pretty excited and motivated. So we'll be that's awesome. talking about this a lot more. Com comrades in arms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Excellent. Hey, I got a question for you guys. So... Chris is asking a question. Go ahead, Chris. We lost him. Oh. Was that what he's going to okay. ask? Is if there you are. You're back, excused. Chris. All right. So my question is, I don't think on our listing of board officers and directors that we have our emails listed. And if I remember that correctly, I think we should. Um, People yeah, ought to be do. able to get all of us. Oh, you mean on the... No, so where are you wanting it? Because Denise sent out a list to us, um, which she needs to update, I think, with a couple of changes that came in to her, but she will. Um, and so, but I don't want any more stuff on the website than is because I'm already getting so badly spammed from ACB crap that, God. Anyway, what, what where did well, you have I, in mind, I, Chris? I guess I guess I, I guess I think that the, the directors and officers ought to have their emails listed where we list board members on the Braille forum and elsewhere. Otherwise, people can't get in touch with us. Well, they can get in touch with us through the national office, or I'm just really reluctant to list per people's personal email any more than we have to because it actually is such a candidate for spam. Um, and, and I tell you, I mean, I don't want mine any more places. I do agree that, that if people want to reach us, um, that, that we need a, a centralized way to do that. And we can sure talk about that. But I, I am very reluctant to put people's personal information more places. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, and I'm getting hit with a lot right now just because of the number well, of places. So I am too, but I mean, we, I think we all get a lot of spam, <laughs> yeah, but I still exactly. think as a matter of policy, yeah. well, you got to be reachable. Okay, and I think we are. It just may not be through direct email addresses. So we can look into what we can do better, but I don't want to do it this way. I really, really don't. So, um, so let's let's figure that out if we need to be... Well, IT has a way to know how to do that kind of thing without even revealing an actual email address, but you click on a link to right. communicate with that sure. particular person. Yeah. Yeah, but that still gets you spammed. That's just as spamming as putting your. Yeah, that does, yeah, that does not work very okay. well. Yeah. Um, yes. I think maybe we should have like one central mailbox or something right. like that. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll take this up later. Um, but. Um, but duly noted that some people have a concern about this, and we'll look into what the options are. But I really have to tell you that um, 
it, the volume of really bad garbage that I've gotten since having my that's directly attributable to ACB, um, that that's where they've gotten it, is way, way higher. And so we, you know, in the end, I'm, I'm all for being accessible, but I also believe if people want to find us that there are lots of ways to do it. So we need to figure that out, and I'm totally for it. But uh, we'll take that up later. All right, do we have everybody that we're going to get? Let's um, begin our afternoon. You're here. That's all that matters. And are you bored yet? <laughs> all right. Ray, Ray's here. He's bored. We're ready. Let's go. Rick, Karen needs to see you. Okay. Karen needs an ALD. And you, it may not be working. Okay. Well, we'll get it fixed. Oh, batteries. Yeah. These things just want power all the time. Like board, like directors, like boards of directors. All right, let's um, let's go ahead and begin this afternoon. We're going to, um, as soon as we get squared away over there, we're going to uh, begin our re. re yeah, I just turned it up. Are we good? No, no. Is it still not working? Oh, we might have fixed it. Okay, then let's go before it stops again. <laughs> okay. Um, Let's see. So we're, this afternoon we're going to review the, uh, where we are with the strategic goals of the organization. So we're going to kind of bring this down to home and see how we're doing. And um, I think this is actually going to be great. So, uh, Dan, how do you want to do this? Do you want me or Nancy or somebody to read these? And do you want to talk about them or how do we, yeah, how do you want to do them? Yeah, we can do yeah. All right. Okay. So I'll, I'll be happy to. Dan will need a mic. Um, Okay, you got one right next to you. Yep. All right. All right, be that way. Okay. So uh, we're ready to go with the one-year plan. Um, so the first item on this is present financial plan with approved uh, ACB budget. So revenue plan is in alignment with the budget. And that was due on January 1st, 2023. Right, and I mean, we obviously yeah. set the right. the board approved the budget with the revenue, and you know, we, we'll go through the different items underneath that. I think mm -hmm. there's a series mm -hmm. of items. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Create and empower a major individual gifts committee, which was January first, and that is completed. Yes, that actually, even though we put the strategic plan together in the uh, September, I guess the October timeframe. Uh, can everybody hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, the, the major gifts committee was uh, put together in November of last year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And if you have any questions as we go along, just um, shout out. In the uh, major gifts committee, for those, uh, well, several of you yeah. serve on the major gifts committee, but mm -hmm. it's really trying to identify our top 100 individual donors. And uh, Colby Garrison is our lead uh, resource development officer, along with Joel Lynn. Uh, working with that committee, Jolyn Bailey Page, and we're you know have done an outreach. Uh, Michael Garrett's part of that team. Oh, I'm going to forget people, so I won't even go down that path. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, Gene Mann, many others. Uh, but as part of that, we did an outreach to the top 100 donors and just thank them for donating to ACB and again in, in continuing to develop that relationship with our top 100. And I think some of you will remember Colby uh, sharing the story about the person that 
that she talked to who had never been to any kind of ACB event or never been contacted by ACB and has contributed on a regular basis, a pretty significant contribution. And, you know, what a thrilling opportunity is to actually um, make connection. I mean, some people in the organization that we see every day are part of this. And of course, we have connection. But what about those people we don't? So um, I thought that was amazing. And, and really cool. Define Can I ask a question yeah. on that? Yeah. And that is, um, that top one, how, where do we, where do we do the cutoff on what the amount is to qualify someone for that, for that uh, status, if you will? Well, Terry, that, that's really a good question. Donations, yeah. For yeah. donations over $10,000 or... Oh, well, no, have, it's uh, not no. anywhere that significant. I wish it was <laughs> the top one. I wish one. we had that <laughs> problem. Yeah. I thought I'd dream yeah. big. Um, yeah. But, um, well, we've kind of done it a couple of different ways. We have the annual giving society and the, the cutoff for that were folks that have been giving 250 a year annually to ACB. Uh, and that um, ACB and affiliates, and that that group has grown to be about it's it's in excess of three hundred people now. So the probably the cutoff for the top one hundred, and, and it's just a matter of how many people can you manage effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, I, I can't give you the exact number. It's somewhere the cutoff is somewhere between five hundred and a thousand for the top one hundred. Yeah. Thank you. And keep in mind that there are some kinds of things that. Um, what? All right, we got a train whistle Somebody's, for that. Very nice. That's, nice. that's my son. That's yeah. thought. Uh, so I keep in mind that there are some kinds of contributions that probably would be exempted from this, like the auction, where some of us spend a fortune, but it doesn't count there. Yeah. Um, Although we are actually for people who um, for who buy items during the auction, we are counting that as just you know. Right. As an area, it's not officially, according to the IRS, a, right. a fundraiser. I mean, you can't think of it as a not, uh, see, what are we going to call it? A, a charitable gift, mm-hmm. except above the fair market value. Right. And, and Leslie does get some people who ask her about that occasionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, but I in don't general, know. with Brian's cookies, how would we? Uh, yeah. yeah, how could you? How could you put a fair market value on those? Uh, but, but I do think that. Um, Right. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. Items. Yeah. I, I, items, I'll, not I'll, I'll repeat food. this. Yeah. It's it's items uh, amount of an item that's purchased, not not a food product. Okay. Thank you, Leslie. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Define ACB lead for all corporate and foundation partners, and that was uh, due on February 28th. It says corporations and foundations have been completed, Mm -hmm. and a major gifts committee was formed. Um, Right. So, again, um, dealing with uh, corporations and foundations, what we really had to do there is And we started off a few years ago, and our main corporate giving vehicle was our convention. But we now have the D.C. Leadership Conference. We have the ACB Conference and Convention. And we have the AD Awards Gala. And what we are finding is that many of our sponsors will will sponsor two 
or maybe even all three of those events. And so it's been, uh, it's been a, an effort to really, one, identify the contacts for each of, these, uh, of each of these corporations. So we have about 50 active corporations where we have identified an ACB lead contact and a backup contact for each of those relationships and the people that we're working with inside the corporation. Uh, what we're finding there, uh, Clark and I have a lot of the responsibility in these areas, and what we're trying to do is not just reach out to these folks during the convention cycle or during the AD Awards Gala cycle, but act- actually have having ongoing relationships with them where we meet with them on a monthly basis or quarterly basis and talk about our relationships with the organization. And so... Um, we're trying to get better at understanding that data, and I think we've got a pretty good, we have a good portfolio of who's given to us across all three of our fundraising opportunities. One example of this is Spectrum Charter, who, you know, what happens with these corporations is they don't plan by one of our events. They plan for an annual giving mm-hmm. cycle that includes ACB. So, Example of Spectrum Charter, they gave us $15,000 this year, which they wanted 10000 dedicated for the convention and 5000 for the AD Awards Gala. But it was all one, one ask and one combined gift. And so we're learning more and more that it's really important when we work with these corporations to understand their fiscal year, how they operate, how they budget, and to make sure you, you have to get in that giving cycle earlier in the process. If you're waiting to two, three months before the event, in many cases, you're way too late. So you've got to have an ongoing annual relationship with them. So we're, we're working to establish that. We have a list that we work through, like the gala. We had 40-plus people we called and, and contacted in relationship to the gala. I think 10 or 11 of them have come through so far. But again, it's, it's a different kind of way to deal with our corporations. Foundations, the same way. They have annual giving. You know, They have annual cycles when you have to get your reporting in by, when you have to you know, you know, apply for the next year's grant. And so we're living, uh, again, working with Joel and Bailey Page, we're really having a cycle and a, and a calendar of foundation giving uh, and requests, I'll say. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan, this is Chris. Yeah, Chris. So, uh, to, continue, to continue my unpopular questions, um, mm-hmm. do we ever consider doing advertising in Braille form, even if we did it by category, like assistive tech or something? Well, this is a because we are a non-for-profit. It's very difficult for us. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, advertising is, eh, yeah, but very difficult. sponsoring. There's a way you go about doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, think of us kind of like um, think of us a little bit like uh, the um, national broadcasting uh, stations. You know, your local PBS stations. Yeah, and you know you can you can do. Uh, campaigns and those type of things, but you can't really sell advertising. And we definitely can't sell advertising for the Braille Forum because that goes out free matter for the blind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And we have restrictions on our ACB media as well that look like that. We based on the licensing that we have for the part of ACB media that has licensing. 
Okay, never mind. Yeah, but it's a nice try. <laughs> but but you know, yeah, something to keep thinking about. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. All right. Um, the next item is grow revenue to match expenses, and that was December thirty first, twenty twenty three. It says with ACB leadership uh, transitions, the first step was t- to solidify existing revenue sources, maintaining uh, to convention or I'm sorry, pertaining to convention and ADP gala sponsorship and renew existing foundation grants. This has been a challenging year to expand corporate sponsorships and obtain new grants with the challenges of the economic landscape. The board will be provided with a better view of the 2023 revenue funding during the 2024 budgeting process. Um, The thrift stores continue to be successful because there is someone to manage the day-to-day operations, thanks to Chris Sawyer. Yeah, so I can comment again. These were the comments related to you know that you all received in your packet. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been a challenging year when it's come to corporate giving. Um, I thought we the team really pulled together in a pretty difficult situation. By the time we transitioned, we were already into April, and it was pretty late for a you know end of June. Um, time frame to, to pull together our corporate uh, sponsorships um, at the point, uh, not that things weren't in motion, but at the point uh, that I got uh, put in the interim executive director position, we had $55,000 in convention sponsorships. And the team really pulled together and worked very hard. And I believe we ended up with $319,000 worth. So it was a lot of, of really hard work. But it's been a difficult environment. Uh, we had organizations like Facebook who had been, you know, diamond sponsors in the past that just were not in a position to sponsor at all this year. And so uh, we found some new sponsors and, you know, tried hard. But it what, it is a difficult corporate year with the way that, you know, the, it's, the economy has gone for the last year or two. It also has been a very difficult year with foundation giving in that foundations give based on their endowments. And with the downturn in the stock market in 2022, most of the foundations saw their endowments go down by 15 to 20%. And so with that, they were a little hesitant to give at the same level that they gave at the previous year. So... Some of the foundation gifts we did receive, we received a percentage reduction from what we had received the year before and uh, have not been successful at, at, at having any new foundation grants for this year. So that's kind of where we're at in the foundation space. We uh, have talked to some of the executive uh, directors of foundations. I've had a couple of good conversations with them and they believe next year will pick up. This has kind of been a a blip for the whole nonprofit industry uh, as a whole that, you know, the PPP money and ERC money is is ending this year. And at the same time with the stock market being in a downturn, it has just limited um, foundation's ability to give and give to new, uh, to new requests this year. So I'm thinking it is going to look up in 2024, but it has been a tough year. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you've covered this next one a lot, but I'll just... I wish I had better news. Yeah, <laughs> <It's coming>. mm-hmm. <laughs> this is kind of a tough. It has been a tough one-two punch uh, yeah. from the revenue uh, standpoint. Well, I just really want to commend staff for the work they did around the corporate sponsorships for convention because uh, when we made the transition, it was bleak, <laughs> and um, and and it was an understandable problem to have. Um, as as Eric was leaving and Dan was coming on and all of that stuff, but the fact that they were able to really aggressively get out and um, get as much in for that season as they did um, was, I think, absolutely amazing. So um, I just it, really want to. And if you get a chance, and, and, and Clark's here this weekend, please give him a big handshake yes. and a hug because I mean Clark has really been the glue that's pulled us together through this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Build a comprehensive annual fund that is founded on individual, corporate, and foundation giving and events, and that's December 31st. The resource development team has been provided a breakdown of revenue from individuals, corporations, foundations, earned revenue, and other income. Individual reports have been created for each major fundraising program. Corporate donations are now um, evaluated across all ACB's fundraising events. Yes, and we really, uh, again, a lot of thanks here to our CFO, Nancy Marks-Becker, uh, along with the resource development team of Bill Reeder, JoLynn Bailey-Page, and Colby Garrison. We've had a whole series of meetings to really, for the first time, I think, take our information out of donor perfect and really generate uh, understandable um, revenue reports. So we now have a report, and I don't know if we shared it in the packet, but we we did. Yeah. Okay. Final. You re- okay? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay. So working with uh, Bill and Jill, and you know, we we've kind of grew up with the way we reported revenue, and the more. I'll say standard way to look at revenue across a nonprofit organization is what do you bring in from individual giving? What do you bring in from corporate giving, from foundation grants, from earned income, and from other income, which in our world, the other income ends up being, you know, things like the PPP money we got from the government, or occasionally we will get proceeds from legal activities and these type of things. So, um, and now we have a report that shows us each of those categories, how much we've received in each of those areas, and all of the major fundraisers underneath that category that contributed to that amount. So if you looked at individual giving, you would see a total amount, and then within that you'd see how much the walk brought in and the auction brought in and the Braille form raffle brought in and on down that path uh, along with internet giving and those type of things. And then you'll see all the foundations and, and the foundations that came in, all the corporate giving that happened, whether it be at the one of the, the convention, the gala, uh, the DC leadership conference, unrestricted corporate grants, uh, things like that, down that path. And then... Um, and then earned income, it really was interesting uh, as Bill challenged us with our earned income to understand what we were really doing there, which is not 
money that's being donated to us, but money that we kind of through our work earn and comes into the organization. And it was interesting as we went through that exercise to learn how many areas we actually do have earned income. Much more, you know, what comes to mind right off the bat are the thrift stores, Mm -hmm. which bring in, you know, almost $300,000 a year for ACB, which is, you know, 15% of of our annual budget. But you know what we bring in through membership dues, uh, what we bring in through registration fees for the DC Leadership Conference, for the convention, uh, earned in, earned income that comes from interest and dividends from our stock portfolio. Uh, many in the, these areas. So it was interesting the um, the audio description um, training. You know the training institute that we hold twice a year that brings in about. Thirty or forty thousand dollars. So it was interesting to go through that exercise and see the different areas where we do have earned income that comes into the organization because that's repeatable. You have a really, really high probability of seeing that money come in year after year. So now we have the data. Now from that, how do we then build to to grow each of these revenue sources? Mm-hmm. All right. The next item is hold the oh, annual. Oh, so Chris might question? have a question. Oh, David. Yes. Who, me? Oh. David, you need to be on the mic. Okay, we'll get a mic for David. Now, this is a previous treasurer and now first vice president question. Right. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah and they wanted to dim the mic so you couldn't hear me. Um, <laughs> just um, out of curiosity, because I know we hadn't, hadn't had any to put in there yet, where would be quite, I like the way this works. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like the way it, it will feed out, and you'll be able to really get some valuable data from it. Mm-hmm. Where will bequests fit in there? That would be individual giving. Right. Okay, yeah. that was my thought, but we yeah. didn't mention it, so yeah. I wanted to be yeah. sure. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is Chris. So I have another. I have another thought, which I'll throw out, mm-hmm. which is that um, you know organizations like Disability Rights Advocates and uh, Matt Hanley and whatnot. Uh, litigate on our behalf and they charge attorney's fees when mm-hmm. they're a prevailing party, which includes settlements. It doesn't just mean judgment. And we thought about what, whether it would make sense to invest in a, a, a litigator and then be more directly involved in litigating some of these things so we can charge attorney's fees. I don't know that we have thought about bringing an attorney on as part of ACB staff or consultant, Uh, although, of course, Matt Hanley plays that role for us, and he does have an arrangement that uh, I believe, Clark, you could speak to this, but I believe it's, what, 10% of uh, the fees that that Matt earns, uh, he, he donates to ACB. Okay, well, I didn't know that, but I mean, uh, there are you, I know as a lawyer, you can make a lot of money from attorney's fees. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, if, if you brought somebody on that was a, you know, a, a seasoned litigator, somebody with six mm. years or so experience in, in disability and civil rights, that person could generate a lot of revenue. That's just a thought. It's a good thought, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the next item is hold the annual DC Leadership Conference, which was March 15th of 2023. 
Yes, and there's a whole set of areas underneath that, and I think we did all mm-hmm. of those. We had the con- we had the conference, right. we had the rally, right. we you know options so. to have a virtual and in person um, event with a plan, um, th- and that uh, there was the hold an in person currency rally in Washington D.C. Yay! Um, <laughs> and there was the defined relationship criteria for measuring ACBs. Oh. I've changed That's the next item. item. Sorry. So, yeah, I think we, we definitely f- fulfilled all of our strategic planning items around right. the D.C. Leadership Conference, which was a new venture for us, right, mm-hmm. to do it both virtually and in, in person, mm-hmm. uh, to have a rally, to try to get back for the first time in three years uh, together, mm-hmm. and really adopt kind of a different approach to our D.C. Leadership Conference, where we had... Uh, you know, more, I think, young people got involved. Affiliates did a really good job of sending people uh, who wanted to become leaders or were burgeoning, burgeoning new leaders inside of their affiliates. I uh, thought we had good uh, workshops on ACB and what was going on, you know, and how we could improve membership and involvement in ACB, as well as the involvement of different vendors, the National Park Service, uh, uh, the space telescope folks, uh, the folks with accessible voting, the National Park Service with their passes, and then we did the diner rounds. We did tours. We may we may have overdone it for our first year, <laughs> but uh, and then we threw a, a, an amazing rally on top of that that is still making a big difference for the with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and really got us back at the table on a consistent mm-hmm. basis. So um, I thought it was really, really a successful D.C. Leadership Conference, and tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about our opportunities for next year. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, define relationship criteria for measuring ACB's five levels of connectivity and engagement, and under that we have criteria has been established for the five relationship circles, and the next step is to create a st- strategy to deepen these connections. Right. So, you know, what we've learned, we have people that engage with ACB at different levels, right? So our most inner core is our our family, which are not only folks that are members, but members that are either volunteering of their time, talent, or treasure, along with leaders like all of you uh, that are here that are either presidents of an affiliate, they're a board member, they're on the BOP, the ACBES board, so trying to identify kind of who is that group of about three or 400 people that are very engaged in our organization. And then we go out to friends next to it, which is all of our members, people, again, that donate time or, or, or financially to the organization at a next level, along with corporations as well on both of these levels. And then we go out to the, you know, the the followers and and the familiars and then the unfamiliars. And so as you get further out, these are our opportunities of the bigger circles that uh, maybe John and team and all we're talking about today. There's so many people out there that we have the ability to attract to become members or friends of the American Council of the Blind. And we reach a lot of them through our internet, uh, you know, through acb.org, through acbmedia.org, through the audio description website, and all of our social media presences. But there's so much more there to kind of strengthen that relationship. And how do we bring people from 
being unfamiliar with us to being familiar with us. If they're familiar with us, how do we get them to be a friend or ultimately a, a family member? And so this is kind of our goal for the, for the next year as we've kind of identified what makes up those different circles or bands of potential ACB members and friends, but how do we strengthen that relationship? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, the next item is develop the long-range approach for get up and get moving program, and we've actually made a little more progress on this one than yep. shows up so far, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Deb and I have been meeting with Tom and kind of formalized the the committee and the staff going forward. So those those meetings will be held here just in the next week or two, relaunching yeah. the Get Up and Get Moving Committee. And we're looking at that being more like um, one of the steering committees that we have in other areas so that there will be some uh, working groups under that um, around different elements of the Get Up and Get Moving. So we're looking at at the issue of the how does how does it line up with the fundraising how does it line up with advocacy and and how does it line up with sort of member um, activities so and that means we can all get up and exercise during the break <laughs> and Leslie says yay and, and it's really thinking of it at a broader level of really health and wellness right. and then you know get up and get moving could can, can, can be, be under that, that as well yeah. as the mental health com- wellness committee and right and some of our, uh, you know, um, really our special interest affiliates that have a strong, strong mm-hmm. uh, presence mm-hmm. in these areas. Right. Okay. Uh, so that, that sounds like a really good, I think that's going to go really well. Um, then our next uh, major category is um, investigate options to increase earned income for ACB. And the first one under that is the thrift store extent, expansion possibilities. And it was estimated that to launch a new store would cost approximately $500,000. at just that sounds petty- high. <laughs> really? $500,000 for a thrift store? Yeah, I'll, I'll, let, uh, yeah. Uh, I'll let Nancy maybe speak to this a little bit, but... Chris Sawyer, who's you know we brought in, who's doing a really great job with the thrift stores. There's that ba- you know just to to have a new building, to to build out the building, to go through all the efforts to hire the staff, uh, to uh, you know acquire the merchandise. It mm-hmm. you you have to plan on investing a half a million dollars before you get to profitability. You know what Nancy? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sound dark. I don't know if yeah. Oh, I think you've setting, you've setting up okay. <laughs> yeah, Set, that's yeah. pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah. Because yeah. you gotta pay those employees while you're just haven't sold anything. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean there's yeah. So, so on so on so on like a regular store for the thrift stores, they'd have to start taking donations like a month before and in uh, order to have it filled up when the, you open up the store, you most likely would have to go out and purchase um second hand goods so that you have enough for the opening. Yeah, I could bring yeah. some over from my house if they'd like. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it, it is still is is not necessarily a it's it's not something we're we're ruling out for the future. And you know, of course, we're established in the Texas area and in the West Texas area, and so mm-hmm. you know, we're in that state where you know we've got all the licenses to operate in the state of Texas. So. Uh, you know, they, they, something could come along. Something could could you know become an opportunity for us. But right now, I think we're not in a position to be able to invest that much of our uh, endowment no, capital in that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. 
Next item under this is report out viability of monetizing ADP program listings and the GALA and ADP training institutes have been successful. Um, there are additional opportunities such as the ACVREP course and certification program. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, so we, we again, we're uh, trying to look at our programs and where can we monetize those for additional um, revenue areas. So audio description is an area that is, you know, the ACB is just in a very primitive, premier uh, position when it comes to audio description. We are really thought of as the, the true experts in audio description across the industry. So we have leveraged that in a couple of different ways by starting the AD Awards Gala. This will be our third annual one this uh, November 14th. This, uh, you know, really um, rounding into shape. We had an excellent meeting yesterday. So we're finding now that we're bringing in, you know, north of $100,000 of revenue each year for the Audio Description Awards Gala. Now there's some expenses associated with that, of course, but... It's, it's bringing in revenue and it's providing us a really large amount of visibility and credibility throughout the industry. So that's been uh, an, uh, a way to monetize audio description. In addition, mm -hmm. we talked about this a little bit earlier, but Joel Snyder does uh, a really excellent job with, uh, with member volunteers. We hold two Audio Description uh, Institute training classes each year one in the spring and one in the fall, and those are now bringing in uh, annually about $40,000 worth of revenue for those. Uh, so other opportunities could be out there, but we have at least found those two. Um, we all are also are doing some work with the National Park Service and the University of Hawaii through the Unity Project and the, the descriptathons that they hold, and that's been a way for us to get some grant money in, and again, leverage audio description. Mm -hmm. The other item that we're mentioning there, and Kim can maybe speak to this, but we are finishing up, I think we probably got a year to two years left to really fully, uh, for ACV REP to uh, launch the um, uh, certification program for audio description writers, editors, and uh, quality control engineers. And as part of that, we've worked with Microsoft to prepare a certification curriculum which could be used to help people uh, you know, build towards their certification. So kind of that initial training course uh, towards that certification. But Kim, mm -hmm. I know you were more involved with that than, uh, than most of us were in helping pull that together with Joel and uh, Microsoft. Yeah, no, you covered it pretty well, I think, and it's a it's an online um, asynchronous course, so people can study at their own pace and prepare um, for you know the certification examination for audio description that we've been working on for the last few years. So we're hoping to finish up the review. Um, Joel has done all the work. Now it's in Tabitha and my plates to review and you know, make any evaluations and then fixes. So we hope to have it, um, you know, off off our plates in spring of 2024. So. Mm -hmm. And I, I think at this point in time, I will just, um, I, um, and there'll be 
many more uh, celebrations to come. But mm-hmm. I at least want to announce that uh, Joel Snyder, who you know is currently in the role as being our founder and senior consultant, and really has been so eminently involved for the last 15 years with the audio description project, has uh, shared with Deb and I that he's going to be retiring at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And so we'll have to do a lot of Joel Snyder celebrations Mm -hmm. here uh, (laughs) over the next few months. Uh, But I just wanted to recognize Joel for all of his hard work and really being the true catalyst to help us get audio description to where it is now. And he's not going anywhere. He's already agreed to volunteer on a couple of our audio description project subcommittees. Mm -hmm. And he does want us to continue to contract with him to do the training institutes twice a year. So that's Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, The viability of monetizing ACB member volunteers to provide blind and vision expertise to product and service industry partners. And under that, it says ACB tried, um, uh, uh, whoops, sorry, uh, but, but um, uh, labored intensive uh, for the minimum amount of revenue that was received. Right. Mobilizing volunteers uh, itself was labor intensive. Yeah, um, um, this is... Folks keep bringing to our attention the opportunity that we have this amazing group of ACB members, uh, volunteers, who would be willing to be experts in different fields. They can help do focus groups for different corporations. They could provide uh, input on assistive technology. They, we, we have the, this wonderful resource with our members. And so we've tried a little bit of can we harness our our member volunteers, uh, compensate them for their efforts, and you know uh, perhaps use that as a way to get m- money for some stipends for our members, and maybe provide a service out to corporations and government entities and receive revenue back for providing that service. We've tried that a little bit, as Deb was alluding to, with the National Park Service and the virtual field visits for the UNID project. So when people complete a virtual field visit study, we compensate them with $75 for their hard work. They're usually the volunteers that have been part of the descriptathons. Uh, they do as many as five uh, a month, so they've, some of them are earning up to $325 a month. Uh, and then we uh, cover that with the grant money we've received to provide those services. It's, mm-hmm. it's worked, but one thing we've learned from this, it's a truly labor-intensive effort to kind of coordinate your volunteers get the work done, collect their work, and make sure that the invoicing is happening properly. Nancy has to check it all off, make sure it's done successfully to the vendor's uh, uh, qualification and certification before we then compensate the folks. And we go back to the grantor and and recognize that the work has been done. So I, I won't say it's not a viable model, but what we've learned, it's very labor intensive. And it's it's hard to do much of this in a scale uh, with the with the limited staff that we have right now. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Then the next big item, successfully hold the ACB annual conference and convention as a hybrid event. And we've got lots of items. The uh, convention should end with the banquet <laughs> on Thursday, yes, July 6th. Yes, we got 6th. very clear from, our, uh, from <laughs> yeah. our survey at the end of 2022's uh, convention that we did not want to be continuing to do business once the hybrid <laughs> portion of the convention was over. So yeah, that was one I, of our goals I, for this year. I think we met it. <laughs> the banquet would be the last event of our our, our annual ACB uh, Except for those of us who went on the Music Box Tour. And yes, that was yes, just yes. amazing. So that that, that, that know, was all fun. So yes, that was that fun. Was great. Yes. Um, the convention should earn a minimum of 150000 net profit. Right. And, and uh, right now... Um, we are, uh, I believe, the latest report I got from Nancy is uh, we are we earned one hundred and fifty six thousand this year. Oh. So we met that goal. Although I will say there'll be a little bit more discussion about. Um, I'll just I'll say room night commitments, and I'll mm-hmm. leave it at that. Yeah, because yeah. this is becoming a challenge for us with our in-person portion of our conventions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you all have to stay eight weeks, even though the convention will end at the <laughs> banquet on Thursday night. Everybody must be on the David and Rhonda Trot schedule of yes, arrival and departure days, for the convention. Extra days, that's right, that's right. All resolutions and constitutional amendments are voted on by the ACB members. Yeah. Again, we've now done this for the third year where we've used vote now and everybody's had a chance to participate and vote. And I'm very, very proud of what Mm -hmm. we've been able to do there. Shout out to the voting task force with Pat Sheehan, with Jeff Tom, with Connie Sims, and everybody. Many of you have been involved in that Mm -hmm. really great work. And they're at it again this year. Yes, they they get started early. Mm -hmm. ACB members can participate in person or virtually, which is a big hit, I know. And holding candidate elections, and we did all of that. Uh, And uh, that's it for the convention. So, uh, yeah. Very successful convention. It, didn't it feel like we were kind of almost back yeah. to normal last year? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I wish we had more of us yeah. there, but it really felt felt, felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. All right, develop and implement an update to ACB's uh, at digital assets. Mm-hmm. And um, up, um, update acb.org. Um, so landscape is currently under evaluation and review. Um, update members uh, .acb.org, which is on hold. Uh, feedback is received from uh, groups.io provider and uh, ACB link possibilities related to members.acb.org. ACB link has been updated with the new release in June of 2023. Um, members have provided fo- positive feedback. Um, so then we uh, members uh, train members how to use members.acb.org, and that's scheduled for the fourth quarter. And sun, uh, Sunset Legacy um, ACB Media uh, Infrastructure um, still under evaluation, and right. uh, we're working on it, yeah. Yep, and so kind of, uh, I guess, commenting on those, maybe reverse order is the best way to do that. Um, but we are continuing, you know, we ported over ACB radio to, uh, um, 
to the Azure cloud when we moved everything over to the Microsoft Azure cloud. But we did not decouple all of the, you know, the environment that had been created by Larry Turnbull and others, you know, years ago on how to kind of schedule and manage programs. Long before Larry. Even before Larry. <laughs> way, you know, long way before. So, yeah. so it's this Jeff historical Shang. code that really no one everyone's afraid to touch uh, because if we break it, we don't know if we can ever fix it again, to be mm-hmm. totally honest with you. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but it, it is kind of broken in that we can only use it for, uh, for mainstream. We now have multiple channels. And, and so one of the things that the IT team has been looking at is that we really do need to move to a new scheduling package. And I think it's a, it's a lift. It's, it's not how to change the existing code, but it's Mm-mm. to go acquire a new scheduling package, mm-hmm. go through the understanding of how many of our channels really do need to be scheduled. Because um, yeah, I know even one of our key um, individual member donors donated money to ACB, uh, I've recently learned, to help us uh, put together a new scheduling package on our ACB media network. And, and I think we really, this is going to be a goal, I believe, for 2024. is we've, we've got <laughs> to uh, be able to uh, get to where we can schedule programs. Many of us, as we know, we, we go into ACB media and the team does an absolutely outstanding job. But at times, you're listening to the music and not a program. And that's wasted, wasted airtime and wasted space with all the wonderful content that we have. We should be able to be sharing content on a 24 by 7 basis. Rick and team, everybody knows that. We've just got to get to a scheduling package where we can do yeah. that in a you healthy way. You need to way. be able to know when you're going to hear the content, yes, not yes. just randomly not wait just for as, it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so that, so that will be on our goal for, for 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one back uh, is training for members.acb.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cindy Hollis is going to do some training with uh, guidance from Nancy uh, Becker on uh, on uh, members.acb.org. Uh, Nancy, how many people do we have on members.acb.org now? Is it are we over five thousand? Yeah. Give me one. Give me one minute. She's okay. looking she'll, up a she'll precise give us, She'll give us an exact number. I can look number. up a number for you guys. <laughs> okay, but, but it has truly grown. And this is where members can go on, see their information, change their addresses, do things. It's obviously integrated with our uh, convention registration database, also being used now for the D.C. Leadership Conference registration. So we're continuing to try to develop that as a place where members can go and update their own information and and see their information, mm-hmm. see and how much they've donated, you know, different types of things like and, that. And where this specifically comes up every year is at convention time because if people were able and comfortable uh, to the extent their skills and technology permit, I recognize that's not everyone, but if those who could... Um, would could go up there and look for their uh, convention information. They would find all their Zoom links. They would find all their room listings. They would find all their stuff they need because it's all up there, and we have to parse it all down and get it to other formats. And obviously, sometimes we are able to do that really easily, and sometimes we get a little stressed with it. So, so if we can get people to use this resource, um, we can provide a lot more information to everyone, as Dan says. Yep. So, mm-hmm. 
5,500 active users. Yeah, 5,500. 5,500. So we, we continue users, to grow. Yeah. We have mm -hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. And then ACB Link. Um, yes, mm -hmm. go ahead. Okay. Give him a raise and he give get two seconds in there. Okay. Um, we all, for future, I think we ought to, um, I've been noticing this recently that a lot of affiliates don't have any idea how to use AMMS for, to their, for their own uses. And also uh, the coordination between members uh, and, the, and their database that they uh, maintain is probably not 100% uh, co uh, congruent. So I sure. think there needs to be some training for the affiliates on how to use members as well, you know, as mm -hmm. well as the uh, donor perfect, you know, AMMS uh, for, you know, to keep everything copacetic and also for them mm -hmm. to uh, maximize their use of the AMMS system. Yeah, I don't know why I used to do membership for our affiliate and I have no idea anymore why I would even keep my own database because I can add extra fields to AMMS and if I want to keep weird definitions of things or whatever that are unique to my affiliate or that I think are, um, then I can put those in there and, and it's so reliable. So I agree with you, Doug, that if there's... if if there are people still, yeah, well, no, I don't think it requires being that tech savvy. It's just a database. So, you know, if, if we have people who are still struggling, part of it is the officers turn over a lot. I've been amazed at how often the presidents are, every week Cindy has new presidents on her presidents list. And I know some of that is about elections, but goodness, it's crazy. So, yeah. Hey, Doug, this is Kenneth. Kenneth. Uh, I want to ask about uh, those two uh, platforms that Doug just mentioned. Once uh, we had a conversation about, like, say I update my member information mm -hmm. on the, our website, but then, or any member might do that, and then when the treasurer is submitting information, uh, inputting information, having outdated information, and what are we doing <laughs> about maybe that information? We are coming and, conf and confiscating the treasurer's keyboard mm -hmm. at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a, always a challenge when people when yeah. people do things without actually verifying those changes. We run into that with a Braille forum format, for example, often, where the member calls and says how they want that, and then the person who's managing their membership does what they think. Yeah. yeah. And, and we even have the challenge of if you're a member of three affiliates, the first affiliate may put you down as one format, <laughs> right? And then the next Everybody affiliate hammers right down. over it with a different, different format. format. So yeah, yeah. It's, it, so it, it is. It is, it a, is a challenge yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nancy wants to. Yeah, go. Ahead. Nancy's got a comment. This is passionate for Nancy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do have a comment because I will say that the people who sometimes are using MMS are the membership records people. Mm -hmm. They don't follow up with their members to see right. if there's any new information, and they just go and put right. in there what is what been they in knew. there for three years. Yeah. So I, I would really encourage if somebody's in charge of member records that they're asking their members if they've changed their address, if they've changed their phone number, email address, and such. Mm -hmm. It would be very helpful for everybody. Yeah, I did just a chapter last yeah. year, and I thought I knew everybody and where they lived and all that, and I called the ones that I hadn't just checked into lately, and by golly, I had two or three changes that were legitimate 
that we would have missed. So mm-hmm. really, you have okay. to go through and actually do this. But back to Doug's yeah. original question. I, uh, Donna Brown, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. If we can get Donna a microphone. I have one. She already I has one. She's ready. I, I want, I, be a testimonial for Mountain State. And you guys are now using AMS for everything, right? Uh, y- yes, also, blind teachers is, mm-hmm. is and one thing, this was, was not my question, so I hope I remember my question <laughs> after, after. Sorry, Don. <laughs> anyway, no, um, so especially blind teachers, because that's mm-hmm. where the thought came from. We're uh, beg, begging, requiring, or whatever, all of our members to fill out the membership form again because we've added a whole different, uh, an additional mm-hmm. section that, that will be for AABT purposes mm-hmm. only. You know, we get calls for people who are losing vision. They want to still go into teaching, but how, you know, what can they do? So I, I want to be able to match members with, mm-hmm. with the, the request. Well, I don't know what a lot of our members. Uh, I can look out. Yeah, so our our people, that's another section that I have on there. But, I mean, obviously that's only AABT, but there's other special interest affiliates or even state affiliates, you know, who who have Mountain State Council is going to do the same thing. We're going to put on uh, an additional part that will ask, you know, about like, I don't know how it's going to be worded, but like resources or whatever those people have to offer because then when we get a call and say, you know, I, I, I need to know, I, I need a new, you know, magnifier. Well, I need, I can't help them. So I can match them up with one of our members who uses magnification or portable magnifiers or, or whatever. So it's another way, though, of getting the updated information because mm-hmm. that, that requires them to fill that part out to the membership part as well as the additional you know, fields that we want for our affiliate. I don't know if that's what you're. Yeah, and, and these are extra fields that you're using that inside would, right. of AMS. They would be additional. Yeah. Fields. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes, but yeah. you can yeah. define for your affiliate, right? Mm-hmm. Including the ability to identify if you have multiple chapters, you could identify yeah. your mm-hmm. chapter yeah. within mm-hmm. your affiliate. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, gives you that functionality. So, can mm-hmm. I ask my question since Please. I have the mic in my hand? Mm-hmm. So, I'm um, sorry, your time is up. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the mic that, that does that. No. no, it's not the Ray mic. You can go ahead. <laughs> no, so, um, with the, the members.org. This is Terry. Wait, Terry. Uh, Terry, wait. After Donna's question, will be you, Terry. Okay, and sure. Denise. Sorry. Okay. No, with the members.org, um, so is there a way? I mean, I guess a, a person can try to log on there and see if they have a. Uh, an account, but I was going to talk about this at our, our convention next week, and I was going to um, have a laptop there and be able to offer to help members to see if they have an account. Is there some way to, to find out other than trying to log on as to whether a member has an account on members.org? I mean, it, it, uh, is that the only way you find out is get on there and try to pretend to log in or I don't know. I know I have an account. Yeah. But, Back to you, okay, Nancy. Yeah, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Here. Sorry. The reason I'm hesitating is I know I can, as an administrator, try to go in there to see if somebody is already um, has an account, but I don't know. I don't think we can, though. I don't know if you can. I mean, you could try to randomly put their email address in to see if something pops up. So if, if you, 
If they are in members.acb.org and they're associated with your affiliate, you should be able to go into AMMS and see them. So if they're not associated with you, then you could not see it. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you could. So could be as long as they're associated, they don't have to be a member of your affiliate, just associated with you. And, yeah. that, and that's one of the things that I say is if somebody doesn't renew their membership this year, don't disassociate them with you guys because they could potentially want to see your you know, newsletter that you have. How do you go find that? Just get your affiliate up and you'll so see So when them. you're in your affiliate under records, Everyone that's associated with you will show up. Okay. Yes. All right. Terry was All right. next. All right. Terry and then Denise. Terry. I'm just wondering, is there a way that when a change is made to a member's uh, profile in there, is there a way that we could set up that it would automatically send them like a confirmation? In which case they would see what the, you know, what their subscription is to the Braille forum, or if there is an address change or something, and so that they could just confirm it. I'm wondering if there's a mechanism through which we could automatically do that. Well, I'm not sure why you would. It's not the person who's making the change that's causing the problem. It's the person who comes in later and changes it back without researching whether the change is right or not. Right, but what? Yes, but what I'm saying is, okay, I belong to four affiliates, right? Wilson, right. And I'm in there under each one of them, and somebody goes in and makes a change on the BRL one for me is there a way for me to get an automatic confirmation mm -hmm. from the system mm -hmm. or could there be a way for me to get an automatic confirmation from the system so that i know that what is in there for me is correct i think i i kind of like you would do yeah. you know, like happens with many other um organizations and and uh, you know if you make a change to your yeah. profile in instacart sure you're gonna right. get, you're gonna you, you, you are a, a, the difference a, is that you've made that change and what i'm really concerned about i know what you're asking and that makes sense but what i'm very concerned about is that most of our members don't realize this is going on behind the scenes and then they're gonna suddenly get these emails that said a change was made in your account um, and you didn't, you know, obviously initiate it, and I think that's going to create uh, panic, actually. So uh, I, I don't think, I, I get what you're saying. I think it's just really incumbent on our people, our officers, our membership chair people, to do a better job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like Denise? Yeah, I was just going to say the other problem um, every year is that um, as much as your uh, person who is, um, you know, updating all of your AMMS information for your affiliate tries, when they're not given the right, right. information right. from their local chapters, yeah. it becomes a real problem. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's where yep. the issue Definitely. really is. Sure. It, it's yeah. a three-level deal. No, yep. no mm. doubt about it, Denise. Mm. Um, um, actually... Um, other suggestion I'd like to see maybe explored is, so let's say um, Illinois goes in and makes a change for me, mm -hmm. 
but I'm also a member of several other affiliates. Is there a way a confirmation or something could be sent to the other affiliates membership person mm-hmm. that I'm part mm-hmm. of to say, hey, this change was made. You might want to take a look mm-hmm. and make sure mm-hmm. you update your records accordingly. Is there any way we could do something like that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, the, or, or at least if it would flag it to that first affiliate that says it impacts all these. Yeah. Yeah, there might mm-hmm. be some way to do that. We'll, yeah. we'll have to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I see things No wonder you up. never get my calls, Doug. <laughs> yeah, you thought he was just ignoring you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but, but, yeah. but what... Yeah. what w- at least in my days when I was when I was uh, working in the for profit side of the of the world, mm-hmm. where where master data gets better, and that's what we're really talking about is individuals' master data. The more we use it, and the more we find, you know, it will get better because it'll be a value to people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part. The more we can tie this to functions inside of ACB, mm-hmm. and people are actively using it. Then I believe it, it will, it will in a way kind of cure itself. But it that's what makes master data better is is using it. So I yeah. will say what you'll see tomorrow is we have better demographics on our members, and you'll see that in the numbers tomorrow. So I will say that there are people in charge of members' records that are taking advantage of what is in there. So I would like to say thank you to those who've done that. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to thank MCAC and membership uh, together for working and collaborating together to get out and do some training, and they're going to do some more with affiliates around the demographic collection. So yeah. you'll, you'll be hearing more about that from them over right. time. But I do think the more we could get affiliates using AMS to be their official database, That's the better important. the data will get, because now you're not putting it in one place and then transferring it mm. to another. and you know. mm-hmm. So that needs to be one of our efforts as a collective board is to really mm-hmm. encourage people to use AMS as their official affiliate mm-hmm. database. So, All right, I'm going to, if it's okay, move yes. back up. The yep. cha- okay, I just wanted to mention ACB Link and give a shout out to Jeff Bishop uh, and team who really did a good job before the convention this year of releasing a new version of ACB Link which we received a lot of positive feedback uh, from the surveys and just uh, with people letting us know that it really uh, was, a, was a nice release and really helped people uh, navigate the convention and other activities. So mm-hmm. working to provide more enhancements in that area as we move forward. So if you have things that you would like to see ACB Link do for us that it's not doing now, contact Deb and let her know what those things are. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> She'll well, keep a list for us. Yeah. We actually do know of a few things we'd like it to do, so we're we're working on those. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. And yeah. then um, acb.org and we talked about members.acb.org. Again, again, we have to continue to maintain those and grow those and uh, you know, we have our ongoing relationship with Louisville Web Group where we're working on maintenance and enhancements on a uh, on a continuous basis. Uh, but still, there's uh, there's opportunity there in both the acb.org and, and members.acb.org areas as we move along. And so mm-hmm. we'll talk about that you know, probably a little more uh, with Rick and team on some uh, opportunities to improve our, 
overall IT landscape in the future. So you'll probably hear some of those opportunities during our budget discussions here uh, in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. So okay. that's it for da that area. Yes. David snapping his fingers. Oh, David's got David. Looking for David. Still awake. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this might not be the appropriate time, but it's in my mind, and you just brought it up. ACB.org, uh, I, I do realize there's <laughs> some issues there with Louisville Re Web Group, but there's also issues with ACB.org. I would like to see us have a team put together to evaluate ACB.org. Mm -hmm. I will give you an example. It's very convoluted. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the annual report. Dan, you was in the meeting, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we knew there was annual reports through 2021. Right. Well, when I went and searched, I found a whole group below 2018. Well, I knew that couldn't be right. So I got with Nancy, and sure enough, 2021 is there, uh, which it's would have about, been under about us or something. It's right. in a different yeah, area. It's in yeah. a different yeah. area. So yeah. Yeah. We, we're getting very convoluted on some of this stuff, and I think we really need a team to evaluate what we have uh, because we, we've got a lot of great information there, but if you can't find it, it's no good. Right, yep. It's a behemoth, acb.org is. Is there, and is there some things we can do to to again streamline. I think we made great progress here four or five years ago when we launched the new acb.org, but there's definitely opportunity to improve our content management. Yeah. yeah. And since we'll be looking at the whole of acb.org, that'll be one of the pieces under that. Yeah. All right. All right, so that's our IT landscape. Mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah. Uh, okay, the next item is the... And oh, I, I want to oh. throw one more thing up, and yeah, that is yeah. groups.io. You know, we mm -hmm. kind of gloss over these things, but if you all can remember a couple of years ago, the, e the issues we were having with email, and I, I, I want to say that moving to the groups.io platform, it's not perfect, and occasionally if people's servers go down, they get bounced and those type of things, but in general, it has been a much better and stable environment for us to work in, so... It's, mm -hmm. it's really yeah. done an excellent job, and it's really allowed our staff to very quickly be able to see who's assigned to what groups and what committees all in one consolidated place. So mm -hmm. I, we, we do some things right, and we do them right. We don't pat ourselves on the back enough. So it just thanks to Rick and everybody for their works with groups.io. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh, David's oh, hands okay. up again. <laughs> I'm sorry, Vanna's busy. <laughs> <laughs> Van is having a brownie. <laughs> well, I'm, I am. That Deb told me to get as close to the door as I could so I wouldn't interrupt the meeting. Actually, this, this is a, a, a positive negative. Uh, several years ago, several years ago, the positive thing happened. Yes. We had a gentleman agree to sponsor, I think there's a $500 or so license fee for ACB Link annually. Mm -hmm. And he committed to do that annually. Right. And my understanding is nobody contacts him. And also, that would also make him a major giver, and he has not been recognized for that as well. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we uh, I don't think it was intentional because this is kind of an oddity, but we do need to set us up a way to follow up on these things because, uh, uh, you know, I know he's got that wallet ready to... You know, oh, right. pop that well, 500 out. I think I might know who you're talking about, David, so we'll mm -hmm. keep that in mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And right. thank, thank you for uh, his uh, contributions over the years. <laughs> All righty. Um, so our next item is the de uh, development and implement of the host training programs for the community events national partners. And there's a number of things under that, but do you want to just kind of summarize that whole thing? Yeah, this, this is the whole area of continuing uh, to uh, develop. And I know we have Ray and Donna both here from our community support committee. Uh, but, you know, working really hard to kind of, again, formalize our host training with uh, a whole series of uh, training courses that are now offered for our hosts. Uh, hosts uh, have monthly check-ins uh, that help keep their certifications current. And our facilitators have quarterly check-ins. And I think, again, we'll have some more opportunities tomorrow to update the expectations, guidelines for community events. So, um, again, just continuing to build out that uh, platform and really make it, uh, you know, as robust as we can. Well, and so, I think this was specific yeah. also to the piloting with, with whether we were going to try to train provider. Yes, and then uh, we have, yeah. uh, you know, have reached out beyond, I'll say, our internal folks, and we now have, uh, you know, we have weekly, uh, I believe they're weekly, uh, calls mm -hmm. with... Um, Vespero, Vespero and Blind Shell, Blind yeah. Shell uh, the whole foundation and others yeah. that are, uh, you know, kind of outside of our area, but, well, but related to our field and are now providing uh, content to yeah. our platform. And Just, then the CEU exploration. And then CEUs, yes. we've kind of continued to work on the CEUs a little bit. Now, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth. Is that really the best platform to do CECs or CEUs? Yeah. And can you really, um, again, how do you manage it and maintain it? And, you know, we offer CEUs now, of course, with our conference and convention. Uh, but, you know, so that's still under investigation. Right. Um, wanted ahead, to just, Ray. yeah, just Go wanted ahead, to mention that, uh, uh, along with that, uh, the formalizing the host training with the check-ins and stuff. Uh, the other thing that we do, a couple other things I just would mention, we are doing facilitator check-ins also mm -hmm. so that they have an opportunity to uh, get some help. And then we are, the committee is actually, I don't know if Cindy included this or that in her report, but I haven't read it all yet. But uh, it basically, uh, uh, we are looking at a few things like um, we've got, for example, hosts that, you know, are on our list, but they haven't hosted in like a long time or maybe even ever, but they're there and they've been trained. They just haven't hosted. And so we're looking at, we're looking at some ways to kind of clean some of that up as well, um, too. And so those, those are some things that the committee is definitely looking at. Mm -hmm. yep. Good. Thank okay. you, Ray. Okay. The next item is expand um, DEIA, which is diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and accessibility throughout ACB's um, operations. Yep. Um, so the membership demographics, uh, which we'll be talking about tomorrow. Right. We have a commitment as part of a resolution that we report out to the board and our members our demographics, and we'll be doing that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we, uh, the MAPS uh, program that we did last year, and that's evolved into the INSPIRE uh, program this year with the new people in that. Uh, 
Yep, very much. And, uh, you know, shout out to Kenneth and Donna and Donna mm-hmm. and Cheryl and yeah. the whole MAPS-P program that got started for us last year with our pilot program. And now we have the Inspire uh, Mentor-Mentee program with their Guides and Explorers. And that's just launched here for, for its second year. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, uh, I think, very well received and a real way for us to develop leaders inside the organization. So mm-hmm. thanks Thanks so much to each of you. Yeah, uh, Increased Spanish language participation through uh, major ACB yeah. events. Um, so we had uh, the uh, uh, for the convention, and uh, we will be having for the gala. Right. So again, with the resolution that was passed, plus conversations we have with Multicultural Affairs and the Hispanic Subcommittee, of which Gabriel Lopez Cafati is the chair. Gabe could speak to this. Mm-hmm. But we have tried to really make a commitment towards Spanish language. So we had Spanish language translations and podcasts for all of the virtual portion of the DC Leadership Conference, all four days. Mm-hmm. And then for the ACB conference and convention, we had Spanish language. Uh, we had all of our um, resolutions and bylaws were presented in both English and Spanish. We had them translated uh, for all of the four nights of discussions on resolutions and bylaws, business portion of the virtual convention. Uh, portion of the convention, and then in the hybrid portion, we did all of our general sessions. Uh, we did the banquet uh, in both English and Spanish, and so I, I think we really made a, a strong commitment towards Spanish language in those efforts. And then for the first time here on November 14th, we will be broadcasting the AD Awards Gala, the third annual in both English and Spanish. And we've been working a lot with uh, DeCapta and uh, Gabe and and team to really bring uh, a real quality video in both English and Spanish. And I'm going to let Gabriel say a few words because he's been instrumental in making all this happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Dan. And, uh, um, yeah, I I think it is very palpable to 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 see how we have grown in just a few years. Just a couple of years ago, this was just an idea, and we have evolved. We started, like Dan said, with um, our first. Uh, well, actually, we started last year. Swatha and I were doing the uh, the uh, quick like recaps after yeah. each um, after each day at uh, at our. Um, leadership meeting and um, we transitioned into a full interpretation simultaneous interpretation uh, which was a big endeavor both technologically talent um, related logistically related etc and uh, we we had uh, the privilege of uh, counting of having some of our very own uh, community members uh, some you know bilingual and uh, professional interpreters who are blind and visually impaired. And then from there, we transitioned into just, you know, that big leap into just making it very, very um, official and making it where we contracted with a company. We got a lot of leads through our interpreters and we were able to secure um, very affordable in, uh, some simultaneous interpretation. We're also working 
with another company who's doing uh, translation. Um, we've all learned so much in this process because, you know, the translation is actually when we translate, like uh, Dan said, like the um, resolutions and anything that is in writing. Uh, interpretation is live uh, interpretation of our events, and it's uh, simultaneous. And um, uh, like Dan said, we have a lot of... Um, We're very excited with all the uh, work that has been put into the audio description gala that's coming up in November, mm -hmm. simultaneously broadcast in Spanish and English and Spanish, with the participation of a lot of notables in the, um, I would say, celebrity, Hispanic celebrity world, uh, including a collaboration with... Um, If, if anyone's interested in following her, um, Katarina Rivera, her name, uh, her, her, her handle goes, she goes, uh, she's um, uh, hard of hearing and uh, legally blind, so she's low vision, and she goes by the blindish Latina, and um, she's huge on social media, over 20,000 followers on Instagram, and she's uh, promoting our audio description gala, she recorded a video for us that's being circulated. And um, like Dan said, the CAPTA is providing the human talent to make sure that we put a quality event in Spanish. And uh, I think from here, uh, there's, no, there's no going back. I think from here, we're just going to continue our growth. Um, the committees or the subcommittees next uh, big, big plan is to, and we started already, is to... Um, at some point, uh, make sure that we have a, a bilingual um, acb.org where you can, you know, click a button said, you know, for Espanol and uh, you can get, uh, at least we want to start with the most important pages of the website and the committee is hard at work on it and we're just waiting to see after the actual main English uh, website is is revamped or reorganized then we we want to follow up with with spanish content but in the meantime we're working on it and that's our next big big project mm -hmm. okay yes okay, oh. okay. Uh, was that doug first it was, yeah, ray, ray before doug okay well this uh actually um Uh, one of the other things I, you know, I think the what we've done with Spanish is just tremendous. But I also don't want to miss what we've done making CART more available uh, for our folks mm -hmm. that need that. It's uh, been very, uh, it's been uh, something that we've evolved over the last mm -hmm. few years, and I'm really glad to see that being made available for our major mm -hmm. um, events. So um, kudos to the uh, to the team on that. Um, And that, that was just my only comment. Good. Yeah, we basically did uh, this year for everything at the uh, convention that we did uh, Spanish for, and then we did CART additionally for the SASI sessions um, that they that they held as part of convention, which we didn't do Spanish for. Um, but uh, but everything that was. Um, translated for Spanish was also made available through CART. So we have a pretty parallel uh, program with CART naturally getting a little bit more to accommodate specific group of people. But, um, but basically, they're, they're parallel commitments. Yeah, and, and along with that, and then we'll recognize Doug, I, 
I keep you have to be, we all have to be intentional about this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to just automatically happen, right? We have to really put programs in place to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And part of that was even um, uh, Rick uh, Morin reaching out and bringing in Bryn Lee to really be responsible for our assisted listening devices at this year's convention, mm-hmm. where we had a person dedicated to just making sure that our hard of hearing community would have working assisted listening devices. So again, you have to be intentional about it, but it there is there is a financial price for this, but it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> It was Doug? Yeah. Okay. Following up on that, I, I don't want to make this financially uh, motivated, mm-hmm. but my question is, how uh, do we have any idea how many people are availing themselves of the Spanish version, and do, and do we know uh, beyond that, do we know who, are we gathering new people, you know, as opposed to people, you know, Right. I, it's fuzzy, and, and Rick may have some data on this. We do have our podcast in Spanish that we can now start tracking and seeing how many people download the podcast. The ACB Media and having a dedicated channel in Spanish on ACB Media, I think was a little bit, could have been a little misrepresenting how many people of, I'll say, Spanish uh um, Spanish language requirements were listening because I think there were many of us that were just checking hopping out, over there to yeah. check it out to say, oh, this is so cool, it's in Spanish. Yes. So I'm, <laughs> uh, but Gabe and I talk about this a lot. It's, you know, do you build build the bridge and then they'll cross the river or do you wait for them to be drowning in the river before you start building the bridge? You know, I, it's one of those type of things that, you know, if you build it, they will come. So I think we have to put the building blocks in place so we can go out as an organization and say we can commit to having this available in Spanish and in CART. The short answer, Doug, is that it's trending up. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. But it's not going to help our, our, our membership directly just doing it because we don't get any data on people. So we, we, you don't have to sign in to listen to ACB Media, for example, or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, what we could probably do is put a little organizational um, information to that channel that's maybe over and above what we do, or maybe we do it on all channels because we have people uh, listening who come to listen to the convention who aren't registered for the convention, et, et cetera. So maybe we need to think about having a little between session programming um, about the organization as as part of that. That might be something that would help us give people a way to know how to get in touch with us uh, in the various ways that you could. Part of the challenge is that although you're doing these things in Spanish, we don't always have, I mean, we don't have our Facebook in Spanish. We don't have, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things where it breaks down if you're really depending on the language, if you just appreciate getting it that way, but you're still comfortable with using the other resources. Um, you know, we, we don't yet have uh, parallel programming in any alternative language. So mm-hmm. that's a challenge. 
Okay. Yeah. This is Terry. Okay. Okay. Terry? Gabe, and then was is there anyone else? And then I think Terry was on the. Okay. Gabe, and then oh, Doug again, and then Terry. Okay. Um, so yeah, Doug. Uh, the the like Rick said that the trend is upward, and um, a lot is also word of mouth, and a lot is uh, the promotion that we do. Even um, if you're not Spanish speakers, um, I I actually encourage everyone to promote the service because uh, especially if you live in, in states or cities with high concentrations of uh, blind population, um, we've seen yeah, a, a, a bigger um, participation in obviously states like Florida, California, Texas, uh, Virginia, um, Washington State. Uh, Illinois, but the important thing also is, like Dan says, um, you know, this, these were conversations that we had, and we we uh, we used a lot of the metaphor of you know the chicken or the egg. What what do we do first? Do we gather the people and have them on hold and say, yeah, it's coming, or do we offer it and then start promoting? Mm -hmm. So right now, Kelly and I were working a lot on on the promo aspect of things, and we're establishing a lot of partnerships with, uh, for example, ONCE, which is um, the big uh, blindness organization in Spain. And, and big bucks, um, they could fund this if they want to. <laughs> yes, Get absolutely. The they, they do yeah. have lots of money. And, uh, and also um, through contacts that we acquired through, um, through Kim, Kim Charlson, we mm -hmm. also have been in contact with uh, ULAC, which is the Unión Latinoamericana de Ciegos, mm -hmm. which is um, also a big... Because there's there's the the thing, uh, Doug, that we 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 still we're still in the process of defining if we are only reaching out to members within the U.S. Mm -hmm. who have the need for Spanish content, or if we want to cross borders and make sure that we promote um, our Spanish content to people to people in who live in Latin America and Spain. Mm -hmm. So. So it's 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 a growing process, but we do see, uh, and I and I myself have become a little bit of a Hispanic stalker. I, I every time I hear a Hispanic last name that I had not heard in ACB, I immediately start sending a message to Cindy. Uh, Cindy, do you know such and such? Can you con can you send them my contact information? Good. Okay. <laughs> or 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 even with uh, you know everyone uh, uh, else, uh, like mm -hmm. Kenneth connected me with one of our. Um, scholarship recipients in the summer from Texas who is uh, Hispanic. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah. I am, I am. Okay, we need to wrap up. So t I believe Terry was next, and then that's it. So, Terry? Oh, no, Doug. We had Doug. Oh, I'm just... Oh, go ahead, Terry. Just, Terry and then Doug. Okay. Yeah. Ter go ahead, Terry. I, I was just going to suggest, um, have we done anything about reaching out to the uh, deaf and deafblind communities uh, organizations within the U.S. even, um, like NA, National Association of the Deaf, the one that used to be SAJJ, that I can't think of the name of now, uh, and and even some of our affiliates. Um, one of the largest population uh, per capita populations of deaf-blind people, for instance, in this country is Lafayette, Louisiana. Right, that's true. Um, that maybe we should be looking at at yep. you know, pulling in maybe the Louisiana Council, uh, something like that. Sure. And I'm wondering if maybe if we could get advertising out to them, um, you know, for people who are having hearing loss, whether it's in English or in Spanish, um, we could get a lot more 
Uh, yeah, we don't have the Spanish in, I mean, we don't have captioning for Spanish. So no, we only no. have captioning in English. So um, just to be aware, yeah, we need to we need to do more outreach everywhere for sure. Doug, did you have a final? I, I did. Thanks. Item? Um, mm -hmm. I was thinking um, maybe I've missed it as an affiliate president. Um, have has there been? Is there programming on uh, ACB Media on a sort of a, a, a section of programming that's on an ongoing basis? So you could send us a. You know, you could send us a promotion and say, you know, here's where you can find ACB's uh, Hispanic uh, broadcasting. Right and now, we, we don't have that yet. We don't okay. have them. But that's yeah. Okay, when we coming. have good. them, we would. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm and we do have the podcasts. They're listed in the convention um, podcasts, but we don't have other programming other than there's a. I think there's a Spanish 101 class in the community, but that's not really what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. But Good. not. Great. But but on our podcast feed, we do have a, a podcast channel de dedicated channel for to Spanish. for right. Spanish, right, Rick? Yes. 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 All, of, all the Spanish podcasts are. Right. So yeah. we do have that, and you that's do have been that. You can direct people to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Let's take a break, and let's take fifteen minutes. We're going to be back at three fifteen, and um, make it snappy because we've got more. Stuff to do together this afternoon. I, I, I just just want to throw one thing. In. I just yeah. want to thank the staff, thank yeah. the board. It, it, as we went through this uh, strategic plan for 2023, I think we should all be very proud of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We accomplished a lot that we wrote down. You don't ever get it all done, but we mm -hmm. really made good progress this mm -hmm. year. So thank you all. Yay! Thank you. All right. Okay. So we're, we're in the final version here of our training here, and that's review and budget process. So, yes. There's a quiz later, and if you fail the quiz, you're helping me with the budget this year. So pay attention, guys. Okay. So... Um, so there are three steps that go with in, go, we go through in preparing the budget for the following year. The first part is the staff building of the budget. The second is the budget committee review. And the third part is the board review. So for staff pre preparation, during the staff building of the budget, there are multiple steps. The first is committee chairs. We reach out to the committee chairs asking for the request for next year's budget. These requests need to have details about how and what the funds are, will be used for. A blank request with no details to go up, uh, to back up the request will be added during the staff portion of the budget process, but most likely will not be approved by the budget committee. So if you're a committee chair and you're requesting money, we need to have some backup as to why you need it and potentially um, looking up to see what the expenses are when you're when you're um, giving me the detail. The next is staff members. I reach out to staff members who can provide input on expenses that are directly related to their program. An example is there are conferences that several staff members attend, so I need to get an idea of what these events are so I can add the registration fees for these events and travel expenses associated with it also. Next part for me is the budget worksheet. To start with the budget, a spreadsheet is made which includes columns for the upcoming budget, the current year budget projection, and prior year actual data. 
We do this so we can see where we were in the process, where in the previous year, where we are anticipating we will be in the current year, and this will help us in obtaining data for next year's budget. For the current year's budget projection, I use actual financial data for the months that have been completed. And then for the remaining months, I will use the current budget with adjustments for known differences. An example of an adjustment could be that at the time the budget was approved last year, we had budgeted to receive a donation from a corporation in October. But now we know that won't happen, so I would remove this donation in the projection. And there are four separate sections to the budget. There are the... um, Let's see here, ACB revenue up revenue for uh, sorry, revenue for ACB operations and expenses for ACB operations convention and ACBS. The ACBS budget is compiled similar to ACBs, but this budget is reviewed and approved by the ACBES board. And yet, you guys, I added some other stuff to this, and I don't have it in here. So give me a second here. I'm going to flip over to my other document. And everybody's paying attention today. Thank you. I know it is. Okay. The ACBS budget is compiled similar to ACBs, but this budget is reviewed and approved by the ACBES board. The revenue portion of the budget is built with the help of the resource development staff members. There are several areas in the revenue sections that are categorized as ACB fundraisers. Now, this should sound familiar. Individual gifts, corporate donations, and sponsorships and grants. So each, for each of these sections, we look to see how this year's data compares to last year's to see if they're similar or if there are significant differences. If there is a difference... We look to see what it is, and if it's something that could be duplicated next year, we will keep it in there. If it's something that can't be duplicated, then we will not add it in next year's budget. This is also done with corporations and grants. We are seeing that there are a number of corporations who donate to the D.C. Leadership Conference, the convention, and the AD Awards Gala. What we are trying to do is to reach out to corporations only one time, with our requests for the year, so this way the corporation can add our requests to their budgets and we will be more likely to receive the requested funds. Once we have confirmed the overall number for a line item for the year, then I will allocate the funds for each month of the year. So when I am looking at the MMS donations, the donations usually bump up after the DC Leadership Conference and the convention. So this line item will usually be fairly consistent each month with, with slight increases two times a year. However, we have a direct mailing typically once a year, so about 80% of the revenue from the mailing will occur in the couple of months following the mailing with the remainder trickling in through the year. I also reach out to staff members who can provide input. An example of this is advocacy proceeds. The advocacy team may be engaging with companies throughout through direct negotiations, structured negotiations, and actual negotiations. During these interactions, there may be a financial component, but ACB isn't in control of the outcome. 
So based on the information above, I've got Clark's name here and here. Clark will give me an estimation of anticipated advocacy proceeds for the following year. If there is a financial component to these interactions, it may take longer or the funds could be received later than anticipated. We just had this happen this last year where we thought we would receive funds from negotiations in 2022, but we received it in 2023 instead. The revenue portion of the budget is usually the hardest because we may have a company that has provided funding consistently. We budget for it, and then the next year the amount has dropped or we don't receive funds. There may be economic reasons why funding changes or the focus of the company has changed. The expense portion of the budget has many expenses that are reoccurring each month. So what this involves is reviewing contracts and or adjusting fees based on what the economic conditions are or if there are any anticipated changes. During the budgeting process last year, we increased reoccurring recurring monthly expenses for the thrift store occupancy expenses because of economic indicators. We also started seeing our monthly software fees increase, so we anticipated this. We increased many of the recurring expenses last year. In the 2023 budget, wages and benefits were 52% of the $2.7 million budget, and this is including convention expenses. If I only look at ACB operational expenses and not include the convention, wages and benefits are 57% of the 2.3 million budgeted expenses. Occupancy and office supplies are 11.8% of the budget, budgeted expenses, and professional services are 13.9% of budget expenses. So when you add these three areas together, this amounts to 82.7% of our budget. So as you guys can see that some of it's not we don't have fluff in our budget for expenses. A lot of it goes just for um, staff and wages and a place for our staff to be. During the budgeting process, we talk about staffing needs and review salaries. This is accomplished by using several outside sources to see what comparable salaries are for each job descriptions. Salaries can vary based on where they live in the U.S. and their work experience. And the one thing I want to note is that typically nonprofit salaries are less than salaries are for the for-profit industry. There may be pro projects that have been identified as needing to be completed in the near future. These expenses will be added to the budget with a note identifying what the purpose of the expense is. And based on the overall budget, this may be removed from the next year's budget. So it may be an idea that we want to do something, but financially we can't. So we'll pull it out and potentially try to get it, get it in there the next year. Okay, next thing is we have many volunteers who provide their time, talent, and resources to help fill the needed resources. An example of this will be AV from the convention. We have, tried to, we have tried to provide virtual and in-person attendees with a great experience. If we contracted with the hotel's AV provider, we could easily have spent $100,000 to $130,000 for these services. 
Yes. This last year, ACB staff worked with volunteer members and independent contractors to provide most of the AV needs and the AV expenses were approximately $70,000. So the budget... The budget doesn't capture the volunteer hours because the budget only tracks financial data, but the volunteer hours are added to the audited financial documents in there's like an information section. So volunteer hours are there. So potential donors can see and understand that our members provide a valuable service. You guys, we, you, I can't say how important our volunteers are to our organization and how they help us out so much with what we do. Then once we have assigned a number to each line item, and there are about 400 of these, you guys, so there's 400 line items I go through, about, I would say four or five times. We review each line item again for accuracy. Then we review the revenue and expense totals to understand if we have a net profit or deficit after the first run. Based on how the budget is looking, we may revisit specific sections of the budget to see if there are changes that potentially can be made. Then, before it is presented to the Budget Committee, the budget is reviewed with the President to provide additional input. So, the Executive Director and I work very closely on the budget just to see where we're at, and then we um, talk to the President or go through it with the President just to see um, where where. Well, in Deb's case, it would be she sees where we're at or what changes she would like put in there if there's something that she wants added. So the second part of it is the budget committee. The draft is presented and reviewed with the budget committee. We usually have two separate meetings similar to how the budget is presented to the board. This is also a good place to receive input on additional narrative information that should be presented to the board. If the budget isn't where the budget committee would like to see it, then there will be discussions on where adjustments should be made. So most, I think most of the staff member, board members are, um, have been through the budget process once, but when we go through the revenue section with both the board and with the budget committee, it's a two to two and a half hour process for the revenue, and the expense section is also two to two and a half hours. And then lastly... It is then presented to the, to the board during two separate meetings where we go over each line item. For each line item, the board will be given the 2024 budget number, the 2023 projected number, and the 2022 actual number. After the first, at the first meeting, the ACB revenue and convention revenue and expense are reviewed. The second meeting, the expenses are reviewed along with the ACBS approved budget. And then lastly, um, when we get, get done going through these two areas, the budget is, uh, sorry, the budget in aggregate is approved. Do I have any questions? Of course. <laughs> but it isn't Ray. <laughs> yes, it is Ray Jr. <laughs> <laughs> we have a strategic plan, and I 
I think, in my experience, what we're trying to do is maximize the strategic plan having an influence on the budget so that we are actually budgeting for what we want to accomplish in this in the strategic plan. You didn't mention that at all. So where does the strategic planning come into all of this process? <laughs> sure. Got him. Uh, yeah, well. Well, Doug, you you are right, and I think this microphone. Give me this one. Okay. Now I might. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. You are correct. So we will be. You know the. Okay. <laughs> Feel like I'm at home. No. <laughs> you are. <laughs> No, we have these conversations at home all the time. Yes. I'm a loud person. What can I say? Um, so um, uh, I'll try to be modulate my voice. Um, so, uh, Doug, um, oh, now, now I really modulated my voice. Okay. Uh, so uh, we will be doing our strategic planning for next fiscal year here in the October timeframe. And you're exactly right. That has to be part of the conversation. Because what you're trying to accomplish is what you need to budget for. So I completely agree with you. It's, it's something new because, honestly, up until a few years ago, we didn't really incorporate through trash, the strategic plan into the whole process but I, I, directly. But I think I completely agree with you. It needs to be part of that discussion. So, yeah. Good. Any, other? Any other hands? Oh, David, I see you're aching to say something. Uh, well, you? I will say, uh, and last year we did this, and I don't know, Deb, if you w would wish to do it again, but I believe last year we had two or three new board members. This year we just have Cecily. But I think we had an open workshop last year as we got started with this, right, Nancy? We did a, an hour or two where people could just, are in, any board members, but even in new board, you know, no dumb questions, come ask your questions. And we kind of went through the budgeting process. Because I do think even for some of us that have been around for a while, you do it once a year. And so for many of, for many of us, it's, it is an opportunity to kind of... Well, we are going to do something pretty formal on the 28th, but if we want to do something even before that, I think that would be fine. Just We just need to coordinate it. But I think that would be a good exercise, you know, because I... We, um, what, what was that, Connie? So when I was new, or when Kenneth and Chris and I, we all kind of talked about this before, that it was beneficial. So I think, you know... To have Cecily and whoever else would want to, but I think it was very good. So I know that was one thing that we talked about as board members. Yeah, so I, I think think we should look at scheduling. So the the twenty eighth of October or November was really very close to when we're doing the, the the formal review, and we've got some just I think overall conversations we have to have there of of, of directions we want to go. Yeah, okay, but I think that would be good. So, Doug, I also I also would say that I think informally we have added, if we had some strategic plans, we did add those in the budget. Like the Spanish, we added those in the last year's budget. So we were looking at the strategic plan when we were doing it last year. Yeah, we were. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I, just, you know, I, I thought maybe there should be a, a 
Just a second. Perhaps there should be room for a um, a coordinated effort between the strategic plan and the, and the, and the budgeting process. So, like so, a, so are you saying like at the first meeting we talk about, oops, I guess I should do that. So are you saying like at the first meeting, when, before we go over the revenue section, we talk about the strategic plan and how we've um, worked it into the budget? Yeah, and we've, we've actually, right, right, Deb, we've got a meeting scheduled the 28th to kind of go through that before we get into the revenue or the expenses to, to really kind of to go through. Here's the concepts we were using to pull this all together. Yeah. Thank cool. You. Ryan, this can go both ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, you need a mic. Oh, I think I probably need a mic. I don't think I got one. Um, just a second. So keep in mind that this can go both ways, that if you don't have the money, to do what you want to do in your strategic plan, then you have to modify that direction as well. So part of it is making sure you put money in the budget to cover your strategic plan, but also making sure there is money available to implement it if if you can. So it's a it's a negotiation back and forth, and, and the meeting that we're proposing on the 28th will look at that bigger picture piece and where where do the requests come from the other thing i will say because i know some committee chairs are here and some committee chairs are listening um that one of the things that gets a little confusing is if things start out in a committee's budget because they're part of our strategic experimentation if you will um and they haven't been totally formalized, but then if they become part of our regular kind of operating procedure, then usually they kind of move into the um, areas that that are you know designated for them. So, for example, at, at one point um, years ago, we we probably had our cart in the sassy budget or something because we didn't know what that would look like and we wanted their engagement to determine um, what that should look like in, on the playing field etc but now that we actually do it it moves into the convention budget and because the committee the committee involved has really nothing to do with um, establishing you know whether we will have it we do and so they may give us input about the provider or lots of things but they don't really have as much information as we do about the amount so uh, some committee chairs have kind of asked me about like did the voting task force have to build in the cost of voting and the answer is no you that that's not something you control at this point or can really input into we know who our voting provider is so um, as you're preparing your uh, uh, things on your budget committees it's really about the expenses your committee will either have or, or that will directly input into. <clears throat> okay, David. Oh, um, I was just going to say that this process works well. A lot of times we'll see a budget that's actually a negative budget, and by the time we get through the end of the year, we're in positive money. But Nancy did a great job, as usual, at presenting this to us. And the one thing that, uh, especially the new members of the board need to know is that we had a clean audit again this year and essentially what that means it, it was an excellent audit uh, we're spending our monies in the right way and uh, Nancy and, and team are, are really keeping track of it so uh, 
as always, they do a great job for us, and I was excited to hear this today uh, because it, it really breaks down the process, and you know how we get now from January to December and know that what we're doing during that period of time, um, when you say you don't know what's going on and what we're spending money on, uh, essentially what that tells me is you didn't look at the budget. But we generally do a great job with it, and uh, it'll be interesting this year. Y'all are good with the budget process? Yeah. All right. Oh, Jeff. David. Well, he didn't have his hand up when I left. <laughs> no, I, didn't. I, I, I said no. Uh, I think it would, and sometimes we've actually ended up having the. Am I on? Okay. Um, I think we should have as part of the budget process, even if it's only like 10 minutes, because God, it's, we know it's long enough, um, a someone representing the investment committee, I guess the chair, appropriately, to give us what the best guess at how the next year would is likely to go. I know that doesn't necessarily impact how we're going to vote on the budget at all, or it could, but I think it's worth hearing, uh, and obviously I also know that the, the prediction could be totally wrong. Um, but I think it's worth having that little snippet of thought um, as we begin our budget proceedings. So would you like the investment committee or um, um, our, 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 our financial planning folks? It, it can be an investment. It can be you, Dan, as executive director. I, I'm not. I, I, you guys can determine how best to have that presented. I just think it would be nice to hear someone present some thoughts on the financial outlook for the next year. I think having Mike come. Or Michael, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be great. Not Michael Garrett couldn't do it, but, no. but I'm talking, is it, his name his Mike? Name is Mike Dixon. Mike Dixon, that's our. Okay, that's yeah. Our, it's our, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that'd be outstanding. You, you all heard from him last year during this fall planning meeting, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He could give us the outlook for the for the upcoming mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good idea. Good suggestion. That's always. Here, wait, Michael, you can't. You got to get on mic. <laughs> Mike, Michael. But keep in mind, when you, you know, if we have, have him do it, that's, that's, of course, he's our advisor, but so that's one company's view of, of, what, the, uh, of what the market will do. And, and like you said, Jeff, could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no guarantee. No, you're right. Yeah, I'm sure they did not forecast 2020 when they were thinking about 2020, huh? Yeah, yeah no, no. It, uh, for, for, forecasting the market is like a budget. You, know, you, you never know. So. I was the last. Yeah. Oh, you had one more thing. You wanted to oh. talk a little bit about the uh, board liaison. Yeah, I can yeah. do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, right here. Let's okay. see if that one's a good one. 
Let's see if this is working. Okay, good. So, uh, okay, so that will wrap that discussion, and um, thanks for everything. Um, and I will let you out early, but before I do, I'm going to move one item from um, my report tomorrow into today, um, because it, it will be easy to, to take care of. The item that... Um, the item that we put into your packet um, at the last minute uh, yesterday to give you something to read on the plane, since I know you had read everything else and we're looking for something to do, is our uh, board uh, liaison uh, program packet. And uh, Cindy gave it a name because Cindy does that. It's, so it's, a, it's ACB CARES. And I've already forgotten all the letters. I was going to be ready with those tomorrow. <laughs> I don't have them. Um, it's yes? Connecting Affiliates Through Relationships by Engagement and Support. Connecting Affiliates Through Relationships by Engagement and Support. CARES. All right. Yes, Indian or acronyms. But I like that one. So here's the deal. We... We've tried several times to get this kind of rolling, and, and we've had a mixed success for a variety of reasons, no judgment about the reasons. So here's what we're going to do, though, this time. And I, and I feel pretty good about it. I think it's going to be a great thing um, for us. So first of all, um, everything is going to be voluntary. So one of the things that means is that the affiliates are going to be invited to sign on. That means if an affiliate just doesn't want anything from the board, except maybe loads of money or something, but it's seriously, if an affiliate does not want to have this relationship right now for any reason, um, then um, uh, they don't have to. So we're only going to have affiliates who want to, and I hope it's most of them, and I hope that if it's not all of them just yet, that, that they'll sign on like later. So, it, you know, the door will not close, but, but we are going to ask them to, to uh, elect for this. Um, the number of affiliates that you each receive uh, will probably also vary. And you, so in, in the sense that you can sign on for sort of more or less, um, I know that some of you have a huge workload and uh, may not want, a whole, you know, to be honest, may not be able to take on a whole lot more of this. Some of you really enjoy it, and you can. So um, we, we'll try to accommodate everyone based on uh, what what we have for interest, and we'll negotiate as needed. Um, I'd like, I'd really like everyone to have taken on at least one, but but I recognize, like I said, that that everybody has different ability. Um, the description of the program is in your packet. Um, basically, you will um, you will engage in in any number of ways with your affiliate and identify with them uh, things that uh, you or that others uh, might be able to assist them with. We're not asking anyone to be to be all to any affiliate or anything, but. But if the more you know the affiliates you work with, the better you can kind of represent them when we have different discussions or when other things come up, and uh, the better you can help them identify resources if they uh, need one. Um, so um, we're going to assign to uh, Doug all the affiliates who need some help with AMMS, and <laughs> as determined by us. No, just kidding. Um, 
But but seriously, if if there are some things, that's great. Some of you are already actively uh, working with various um, affiliates that you had from the previous assignments, and if you wish to keep them, you can say so, and and you can, um, as long as they wish to keep you too. And if you've paid them enough for that, they, they will. So, um, so that, that is, no, that is seriously um, an option. At the same time, if you or your affiliates uh, would like to trade out because you've been together a long time and maybe, you know, everybody would like to have a different experience. The honeymoon's over, yeah, you know, and um, and so uh, it, there is that is also totally uh, totally good. Um, the one thing we will try to not do again, as we've tried to not do in the past, is to assign people to affiliates where they are in active leadership. So if you are the president of the affiliate, it doesn't make sense to make you the board liaison. If you are um, a key member of that affiliate, they already have you. So it doesn't make sense to do that. So, um, but just that you are a member of one, especially with special interest affiliates, whew, I can't keep track of that and I'm not gonna go look it all up. So, so um, you know, that that is fine. But if you really do have a leadership role in that affiliate, then it needs to not be you because they already have you. So, um, basically, yeah. somebody needs something? Yes? Yeah, this is Terry. I know okay. it's uh, probably not totally the best time for this, but I think that it's on the same subject. I would just like to let people know that I've been working with ACB government employees and visually impaired veterans of America, and both of them are working very hard right now to reorganize and get going and re-get going again. And uh, anyone that's on this uh, call today that's at all interested in either one of them, I ask you to please get in touch with them because you've got some really good leadership there that's really anxious to get both of those affiliates back up and running. Mm -hmm. Good. So we do have a number of affiliates that are kind of in, in sort of different states of of organizational um, rebuild or challenge or various things. And we have some affiliates that, that um, have, you know, made a lot of progress in a lot of areas. And so, yeah, as Terry points out, there's some very, very good opportunities. So, so definitely, um, you know, the, the commitment uh, is, is not huge. We are going to ask you to uh, basically send us an email uh, summarizing your, um, your activities with your affiliate. And that is just so we can verify that something is happening. Um, and it also gives you an opportunity to let us know of any uh, concerns or help or whatever that you need. We're going to um, uh, have a, um, give the affiliates an opportunity to learn about this in uh, hump day happy hour with the presidents. And then uh, once we've gotten them signed on and you signed on, we'll have sort of an orientation meeting for everybody um, that's working in this so that everybody kind of knows. It, you know, we want to try to make this not really hard and we want to be open to feedback. Um, but we really do want it to work because um, I think there's a great deal of value in um, working in this kind of a collaborative way. So um, I'm really going to be asking you all to consider that. So if over 
um, the next couple of weeks because we want to have the first stage of this resolved by the end of October. So th that gives us a month to get people assigned, etc. If you would take the time when you get home to think about your, uh, your commitment to this piece of the work already and um, affiliates that you would like to... Um, uh, be working with if you if you have that from your past or other experience we'll we'll give that some serious uh, analysis and consideration um, and uh, basically that's that's what I have on this one so we are going to definitely try again we are definitely going to follow through and uh, Cindy and I are making this very much a joint project uh, to try to give you the support and whatever all you need for this to be totally successful I, I question Kim. Okay, I'm waiting for my, my, oh, yeah. My arm's still here. Yeah? Okay, question. Whoop. Donna? Your arm is, your arm is, your arm is attached, yeah? <laughs> my arm is getting a little tired. But anyway. there, you, there you go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah, so I'm sure you've already thought of this, and, and maybe you said it, and I kind of missed it. So when you do the... You know, when everybody gets mm -hmm. signed on that's interested, and, and mm -hmm. I think this is a wonderful idea... Um, the orientation part will that also be for the affiliate presidents oh, too? Absolutely. Oh, wonderful! Oh, yes, of course. Amen, absolutely. sister. Thank you. No, 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 no. I mean, no. This has to do with we were going to do the orientation sort of separately, and then I said, no, let's no. just make everybody hear the same. Do the same thing at one time. Exactly. And remember, I, I think this is going to really work a little better too because the affiliate presidents many of whom are new by the way so if you've had an experience with that and it wasn't what you wish it may have changed totally so so um you know or if it was what you wish it may have changed totally what can i say but but the point really is that if you all come together and you've agreed to be there i think the whole atmosphere of it is going to be different and i think one of the things that was a little challenging with this at times was i think some affiliate presidents sort of for whatever reason and i don't even want to try to figure it out um be, whether it was their fault or our fault or everybody's fault or nobody's fault or whatever but I think there was some sense of what are you what are we doing this for? So if if you don't see a value in it or if you don't see value in it yet, because maybe there will be great value and you'll wish you could come on later and just say no the door is closed, dude. But um but seriously, um if you if you don't see value in that yet or you don't have time for that yet or your our organization is really doing other things or you know, you just don't want input right now or help or give input right now I mean because it goes both ways so if you don't want to do that you don't have to and so I think that's going to make a huge difference in the commitment on, on all sides so um, I'm expecting um, I'm, I'm hoping for and expecting a very enthusiastic orientation of people who are all there voluntarily. we don't have to lock them in and um, and that they'll all come, so um, you know as best they can. So absolutely, I think that's a critical uh, component of what we're going to try to do here, and I hope it helps. Hmm? Question. question for Doug, I think it is. Yeah, I know. He keeps. Yeah, he never runs out of questions. He's got the Ray Junior mic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it may work for two questions. 
<laughs> He's already done. It's already gone. <laughs> One, is this going to be renewed yearly? Um, yes, I, I think so. I, I mean, you know, basically, um, I hadn't deci- we haven't quite decided. That's probably input we could take whether we would go sort of my term and I wouldn't do this again in July or whether or whether we would do it yearly. But what I think we would do is um, maybe try to extend it since we're already partway through the term um, that maybe it would make sense to make it the whole year, uh, year and a half, but that obviously for any number of reasons, changes could be made. So if a president changes and they want in or out, or if a board member changes and they want in or out, um, you know, or, or if something else. So just because you come on the board doesn't mean you automatically inherit those that are gone. But I know some of you are, uh, will be going off for one reason or another. You're termed out or timed out or something. And so um, I know that's true. So we need to take that into consideration. But um, I'm not interested in just doing this necessarily every year, but recognizing that with uh, presidential changes and board changes, you are going to do some of it every year. So it'll probably look a little like committees, which is that probably every July or after August, September, or some, whenever we get around to it, uh, that every year about this time, that we would at least review the arrangement and and see if anyone either needs to change or has timed out, termed out, and needs to change. Um, and even if you do, you know, time out, term out, and the affiliate likes working with you, you can still continue to work with them. You would just may add somebody to learn from you and work with you as well. Great. The second question is, uh, you said that um, you were going to unveil it, unveil it at the uh, president's hump day mm-hmm. happy hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should also mm-hmm. go out on the president's list. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. Anything that happens on the hump day happy hour goes out on the president's list first, and they're going to receive their pump. version. Yeah. Their version of this document is parallel to yours, but it assumes it's them, not you. So it's the same exact um, material. It's just worded worded in the first person for them and and it will be shortly um uh you know we wanted to present it to the board and get any feedback from the board and then as soon as you've all kind of said yeah that's okay um then um uh, we we don't have to adopt it but i mean if is if i get any feedback from you um then we can incorporate anything but then otherwise we're planning to move forward uh, cindy will uh send it out and schedule it and she and I will talk to them, and she would be talking to you about this now, but she's not here this weekend. So, uh, but she and I will talk to the presidents. So a couple of you will hear it twice, and um, and if you're president of two things, Doug, you have to hear it twice. You have to hear it out of both ears. You get so a couple of you get to hear it a lot. Yeah. So um, so that's fine. Um, so. Uh, no, no, you've used up all your questions. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I think you've used up someone else's. <laughs> so, uh, no, but if, if there is any feedback and you want to get that to me, I mean, this won't, be, uh, this won't really come onto the agenda tomorrow. It's not necessarily a, a big board meeting item, but it was, I was going to cover it in my report. And so since we had time this afternoon, um, we thought we'd go ahead and and do that. So, um, hey, Deb, this is Kenneth. Kenneth, 
Yes, uh, I, I just wanted to caution you and uh, hopefully those affiliate presidents won't make an abrupt decision mm-hmm. without consulting their board because when mm-hmm. I was affiliate president, I really didn't understand the program mm-hmm. and uh, think we didn't benefit from it as much as we could have. And now that I've been a part of it, I believe it's really a great benefit and I would hope those affiliate presidents would uh, really consider and be on mm-hmm. them allow their board to be a part of the, the, the decision as to whether they participate. So actually, Kenneth, um, that, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great point, and maybe we should have plan when we do the president's conversation to ask a couple of presidents who have found this to be successful, and we have a number who have, um, th- to ask a couple of you to um, speak to that. And, and I think that would be better coming from uh, uh, them than uh, than it would be from um, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be um, a, a president even a current president it but but uh, Ray you you have participated in this in all directions right and um, there's a couple of other people so that's a very good point and I would like them to hear that from uh, from presidents who who have thought it was. Uh, worthwhile, even to the extent that we've been doing it. And some of you have done a great job about it. And, and I know that because every once in a while an affiliate thing pops up, um, uh, often you guys are already on it. You already know about it. You're already there. And um, that's been really encouraging to me. So, um, yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. Anything else on this? Dan has one more thing to share, and then we'll open it up for any other quick, quick things for sharing, and we'll stop. So, Dan. Thank you, Deb. Uh, just uh, for those who may not be aware, I know many or most of you are, that um, Cindy Hollis and Natalie Couch this weekend, uh, starting today, I think they started about 11 uh, this morning, but J.P. Morgan Chase has a program called Code for Good, and through the relationships with J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, the reach, uh, outreach of uh, Clark Rockfall, uh, Rockfall as well as um, uh, JoLynn Bailey Page and others, uh, we connected with a gentleman named Jake Wilkerson at J.P. Morgan Chase who runs their um, hackathons each year, their Code for Good hackathons. And this uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, Cindy and Natalie are in Wilmington, Delaware, where they are presenting the ACB community event platform uh, for a hackathon event. And there's only two non-for-profits that get selected for this event. So there'll be 100 engineering IT students from across the country, plus about 15 or 20 J.P. Morgan Chase employees and they have this hackathon where they break into, it's about 15 to 20 different teams, and half the teams are assigned to one non-for-profit and half to the other, and they hear a presentation from each non-for-profit along with their proposed challenge statement, and then also, um, you know, uh, we included a document in your all's packet, which is a seven-page document that Cindy and Natalie put together of the processes that we go through to actually produce the community event uh, platform each week. And they'll look at all that information, and then they'll, they'll ideate, which I think has come up with lots of ideas, 
for the next 24 hours. So once the presentations are done, these eight to 10 teams will be working on ACB's community event platform and coming up with ideas on how to improve it. And then they'll have a competition tomorrow, and some teams will be awarded first, second, and third place for the ideas they've come up with to improve uh, the community event platform. And Cindy and Natalie will be there answering questions. They give a presentation here in the afternoon to get it started. And the folks work all night. It truly is a 24-hour hackathon. So they said by the, the time they're giving out the prizes on Saturday at lunchtime, it's a pretty... It's a pretty excited and adrenaline-filled and tired group. Uh, but uh, out of that will then come ideas that then will be moved on to what they call their Force for Good program, where now J.P. Morgan Chase employees as volunteers will help over the next nine months to implement some of these solutions that the, that the students have come up with. So it's a really exciting opportunity. Uh, Cindy and Natalie were, you know... Very excited, but also worried they were going to be the only two blind people in a room of a hundred and something in a big auditorium figuring all this out. Uh, but I think if, knowing Cindy and Natalie, they're going to come back with a lot of converts for people who are going to be impressed with the ACB community event platform. So we wish them well, and um, I'm hoping I can talk with her a little tonight or tomorrow morning, and maybe we can provide an update at the board meeting tomorrow. But pretty exciting opportunity for ACB. Okay, um, I wanted to mention it's not on the agenda, but tomorrow the logistic at noon is that in addition to lunch, which will be down the hall again where it was today, um, and will be the turkey wrap. Um, and I don't know how turkeys wrap, but <laughs> I was just thinking about that a little bit. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Um, yeah, but anyway. Gobbled. Uh, Gobbled. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly like that, yeah. So, um, so <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Dan, you can do that for karaoke? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, we, we do need to have an executive session. It, um, it, it should not be too long or too heavy or too challenging. Not like some of them we've had where we've had to announce that we need a new director or some of that stuff. Um, but we do have a, just a very few items, so... Um, so what we want to do is to, and so we have the logistic because we have people on Zoom. Sometimes we've been able to start the um, executive session uh, during lunch, but because we're going down the hall to eat and then we're, we need to come back here to accommodate our folks in Zoom. So I'm going to ask, we'll see how our logistics are doing, but to be aware that um, whatever we need to organize and do, if we can kind of get as much of that in the break and whatever, and we'll just time the lunch as best we can for noon and then try to come back in here around, we'll see about the timing, but 12.45-ish um, so that we have enough time to eat and have the executive session. So sorry about that little logistical challenge, but um, um, that's, that's kind of the plan. So, all right. No coffee tomorrow morning. That is bad news, but it's not. It was good that we had it this morning. I really appreciated it. I think today was the day I needed it. Um, so there is no um, coffee or food um, tomorrow. <laughs> really? No, then I make a motion. You go to Starbucks and pick up one of those trays and bring it up here, dude. <laughs> All right. 
Are there any other um, announcements or things that people would like to cover while we're here that really shouldn't, that are maybe not part of tomorrow, but that could be now? Because we've got a full agenda tomorrow. All right. No hands? All right. Then we will be adjourned until, huh? Somebody complaining back there? All hands are lowered. Thank you. Yes, yes, we're we're settled. I have, I have one. I have one quick, very quick. Anyone that's on the phone. Good for David. Yeah. All right. Then then we will be. Uh, oh, is somebody on the Zoom? Need? Yeah. Hello. It's it's Terry. Terry. I just have one very quick one, just a reminder to anyone who would be willing to do it. Um, because visibilities is on Friday night, uh, we're just doing a wrap up tonight of what's gone on today and what people can expect tomorrow in the board meeting. And if anybody on the board or committee chairs would like to join me, you're more than welcome to. Thanks. All right. Yeah, well, not down in your room, you can. <laughs> you have to sit up there in your room and visit with Terry. You can't visit in here. Yeah. Yeah, you can't visit with it, Terry in the bar, Ray. It's not going to work either, I guess. Ah, a few people have done that in the past. <laughs> yeah, this hotel is not too conducive. It's about the hotel. It's not about women. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you for that, Terry. Yes? Jeff. Yeah. Okay, so uh, remember that our auction, our holiday auction for ACB Media and all, November 26th, and the deadline for all of our uh, donations is October 9th, uh, along with descriptions and pictures if you can do it. So, um, yeah, so we're, everything is going along very well. The committee is very excited, working hard under Leslie's leadership, so we look, we plan on having a great auction. I don't think Leslie is excited this year. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That's better. The sneak a peek out. Yeah, we'll mention all this again tomorrow. Yep. I, I have one real quick announcement. That's for yes. people in person, really. But uh, Mountain State Council, next weekend is our convention. We have a 50-50 raffle, and I have tickets, a dollar a piece, six for five. Uh, it's a bargain. Um, yeah. So I will happily take Five dollars for everybody, from anybody who wants, yeah. from everybody. Anyway, I have them, so I appreciate you supporting Mountain State Council. All right. All right. Ray, are you raffling anything this week? You guys are no. always raffling something. Okay. All right. Is that it? That's it. All right. We are um, adjourned until tomorrow at 9. <laughs>